Yo, welcome to another episode of the Where It Went podcast, where we are back on track talking about the Revelation Records discography in chronological order. Today, we not only have a monster of an album to talk about, but we brought along our, our friend uh, to be a special guest host with us. I'm going to say it en français, Jérémy Chatelain, uh, otherwise known as Jeremy Chatelain. You got it. From uh, He's been on the pod before when we talked about Insight, because he was in a band called Insight. And then we punished him about his time in Jets to Brazil. Um, and then he was also in a band called Handsome. But... Jeremy, why don't you tell the people why you are here today on an Into Another uh, interview? Um, at some point in my early 20s, uh, I had grown tired of being in Salt Lake City and Richie Birkenhead, who's the singer of Into Another, uh, he and I were pen pals for a long time since I met him uh, when he was in Youth of Today on the Breakdown the Walls tour. And uh, I had expressed to him that I was kind of burnt out on college and the bands I was playing in and all these other things. And he asked if I would like to go. He told me that Into Another had a new record coming out, which was Ignorus, and I hadn't heard it. And he asked me um, if I would like to go on tour with them and sort of help sell merch and drive the van. And I jumped at the chance and it turned out that I, I was probably on tour with them for three or four months that year, uh, in 1994. Um, and consequently the record, uh, holds a pretty special, uh, place for me. Cause it just, it was like about the time I was moving to New York city from Salt Lake city. And, um, those guys sort of shepherded me shepherded me into my life in new york and and uh that record was like the soundtrack for me for a, for a while so yeah when we did the insight podcast you asked me what my my favorite rev record was i have a few that i really cling to and i have a personal story with the chain of strength seven inch but i think the um into another record is like sort of holds more weight for me yeah, I, think, yeah I, I I kept that in the memory bank. Yeah, like from when we did that episode, I try to to keep them. Uh, and uh, we're glad to have you. Like I said, Jason couldn't uh, couldn't make it again. He may pop on uh, at some point. So you know, we're always full of surprises. You know what I'm gonna do here? Sign oh yeah, for uh, an another box break here. I know you can't really hear it too well, but I am unwrapping a sealed copy of Into Another Ignorus on cassette. Um, I've been having to, I've been, I've been literally waiting for this moment for like a year when I found this tape. And um, I've been having to get all my information about it from the internet instead of the actual liner notes. I guess I could have looked at the 12 inch version that I have, but I was waiting for this. And um, it's so crazy to me that I could unwrap this cassette from 1994 that's still just been sat in the shrink wrap this whole time. Like that's, 
a pretty remarkable thing. Does it about smell? Does it have that like? It smells like smell? Tower Records. Yeah. Paul, I was going to ask, are, are you a cassette guy? Do oh, you I am a quite a cassette guy. Yes. Um, I'm. Uh, it's always been, I think, maybe my favorite um, medium because it's so like, like you could just fucking toss these in the back seat, and I mean they do warp you know, in the, in the heat, but also the experience of making a mixtape, you know, for your friends and, and pausing it and then like trading it with people and sending it to people. I still have a box of cassettes of tapes that people gave me, you know, of either a mix or a like pr promo copy or a pre-release or whatever. And um, I, I don't know, it's just such a cool medium to display also like you see someone with a record collection and you're like yeah this guy's got a lot of fucking records but you can't see always like what's on the spine but yeah. with cassettes it's like i can look up here and see all like oh i have every into another record on cassette now and that's you know such a cool thing yeah i had um because i started on cassettes like vinyl was a didn't come for years later and um there was, there was some about them because you could kind of just like, you know, throw them in the, well, I wasn't driving then I was in fifth grade, but like, you know, getting cassettes and just kind of have them put in the thing, uh, in the boom box. And then, like you said, making tapes was always fun. And um, I don't have a tape player now. Mine doesn't work. But uh, Javier, as you know, I am on its way this week is that I finally, you know, I God knows when I ordered it, that REM bundle. For yeah, the with the Walkman, which is fucking And it has cool. a little, like, Walkman because they give you a tape, tape of, like, with extra tracks on it or something. Wait, the REM bundle comes with a Walkman and, a, yeah. and is it, it comes all? With, it comes with an REM Walkman. Yeah, like, like it's, the, like, it's like, but it doesn't have headphones. It's, like, a little mini, like, boombox for the uh, Radio Free Europe seven inch uh 40th anniversary so you can get a walkman fairly cheap through amazon or uh even uh urban outfitters and just plug the aux cable you can listen to it in your car i'm now on my third boom box in my office in the last year because they keep breaking because that's i listen to them so much you know something always happens and my wife finally was like hey you got to stop buying new boom boxes and you have to only buy vintage from now on. So anyway, enough chattering, enough chattelane chattering. Sorry, I had to do that. Chatterbrain. Chatterbrain. Uh, let's say we just dive right in to the interview. And we'll talk we? more at the end. Yes. Bye. 
into another, you know, just, and I, I think especially this album, Ignorus, really shows all the different sides of the band. Um, so can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Like, uh, as far as, you know, so we, we talked about self-titled, we, we you yeah. know, talked about creepy EP, like going into this, what was, what was like the writing process like for, for doing this? Uh, well, I, I mean, well, I'll say that lyrically this album for me is sort of like, uh, the, my Joni Mitchell blue in that it's the most, uh, the most vulnerable and naked I ever made myself lyrically, you know, and I, I, I spoke of even in, you know, sometimes in metaphor of, of things that were really like, you know, that I'd always kept very uh, guarded and, and, and hidden away in my soul. So for, in that way, it was a very cathartic album for me. The name came about as sort of being almost jokingly just sort of disgruntled that we were, because we found ourselves sort of in, in one way boxed, attached to a genre that we really didn't belong to except for our past, but of course had a lot of reverence and love for, but we, we just didn't fit in any box. And so obviously it's a play on the phonetic, ignore us. So that's how the name arose. But, um, you know, and, and, and Drew, I'll let you expand on this, but for me, it felt like the writing process, a lot of it was, you know, a, a, a theme, a sort of like a, a theme happens in, in jazz or classical music, like a, a, you know, whether it was Tony's bass line to running into walls or whatever riff it was, would sort of come into the rehearsal room. And we were constantly just playing together. And these, these, these riffs would grow into verses, would grow into choruses, would grow, grow into bridges. And uh, it was just like, we all had these riffs and these beats just swirling in our like collective psyche. And we were, at the time, I think we were like just very prolifically just just overflowing with with riffs and themes and chord progressions yeah um i i think it's interesting like the richie's point about like laying ourselves bare for a lot of the a lot of the music in this because um we sort of had at this point worked together on you know the first record and the ep but we were also continuing to write a lot of material we were working up at the music building on eighth avenue uh, in 38th Street on the on the west side, and we had a couple of different spaces within that building over the framework of that record. Um, uh, the first one I remember at the time, I the period of which we wrote, I think, was still during for for Ignorus was during the creepy EP era through a, a whole segment of like a year uh, to a year and a half. And I was living, I remember living down on Stanton Street at the time. I think with like. Tom Capone and, and Walter Schreifels. And I would, you know, go do my, go up to the studio during the day. Cause I had really nothing else to do. And I remember going up there, like in a number of different altered states, like playing myself uh, without the rest of the band there, like just working on rhythms, like doing the, the drum beat for, for drowning and just tripping out, like playing like dun, 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 bum, 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 bum. And, so I could sort of like by design get these things together, formulate them for like when the other guys would come in. And we, we had uh, so much time there. So we would just play for hours into the night. And I think at that point, we were so used to playing together and connecting um, that we just sort of were, we were just channeled a lot of stuff together that we were all into. Yeah. 
right? And and formulated like, you know, what I think Drowning was one of the first. It had a really different intro. Yeah. We would we would do these expansive pieces and then start dissecting them and, and like Richie would always say, you know, you gotta kill your babies. You gotta take it apart. And we'd be like, fuck, we gotta take yeah. this out. Um, and so we started to develop it and we go on tour with some of the music we left for Europe and there was documentation of like us doing fully different versions of like drowning and some other things, uh, through that period. Uh, and when we came back from that touring, I think we were in a position where we were a lot, you know, we, we would develop our material on the road, uh, moved into another space. And I think we filled out a lot of the writing and another, uh, Richie was friends with uh, Jimmy G from Murphy's Law, and we took their space over in the music building and filled out the rest of the record. Um, and at the time, we kind of knew that we had to come up with something that was either going to like help us get to the next stone on the pond, you know, to get over the pond, or like we're done because a lot of our friends were at that time, whether it was Quicksand or you know, dudes in like you know, Orange Dine, all these people are getting signed, Siv. And we're just like, like Richie had illustrated with this point, like with Ignore Us, I, we kind of felt like, you know, no one really understands what we're about. And we're getting looked over with a lot of this stuff. And it was kind of really a contemplative moment for us. Like, what are we doing? And Richie was friends with uh, this guy, Todd Irwin, who played drums for, for a band called Lomito on the Lower East Side. And Todd's a great musician. His brother's a great musician. And Todd came in to... True, you're making it sound like I had friends. I, I didn't have <laughs> I use that term loosely. Yeah. And also, I, I have to say, not, not to interrupt, but in all yeah, fairness, no, we, did, we didn't understand what we were about either. Just had to put it out there. Just in all yeah. fairness to, to everyone else. So we, 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 I think we were speaking to ourselves just as much right. as to everyone else with the, the name ignore us. Anyway, sorry, yeah. go on. No, no, just please. A little self-deprecating. Go on. No, no. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so they kind of like Todd and... The, the engineer for the record, Ray, Ray Martin, came in to some of the rehearsals to help us, you know, hone some of the material, take a look at it. You know, what do you guys have, you know, to present with this? And, you know, we we basically like had, you know, everything written for the record that you hear, plus uh, Herbivore and To Be Free. And, um, you know, just kind of. I would I would sleep over at the rehearsal studios a number of nights just going over some of this stuff because my my apartment or home life at the time wasn't was 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 a little tumultuous. So I would like to, you know, I'd sleep there with the rats crawling around on the floor, like, you know, waking me up and I'd play drums and come back to this. So that kind of like, you know, uh speaks to what Richie was saying. I feel like it was a very raw time in all of our lives to try to connect with this music. It sounds like a like the record. And and Hav, I don't know if it was you that brought this up. It literally just sounds like it starts, like you guys just plugged in and played through the whole thing mm -hmm. in one take. And I don't mean that yeah. in like a it's sloppy mm -hmm. at all. Cause yeah, it's, like this could be a, a live set. Yeah, like these songs it just, in this no, order. That, that, that makes well, sense. That that's that cohesiveness uh is is apparent to me too, listening to it with the clarity of many years having passed. And it's because I really do feel like we were playing together so much that there there was like a, a real synergy and we were all in a very, um, we were sort of on this creative journey together. So what was coming out of us very organically, and it was so organic that it would be sometimes, you know, Drew and I would be the first people to get in the studio. So I would just pick up either a guitar or a bass and we'd start playing something and we'd be like, hey, we're, we're playing something in seven. Let's, let's do something, or whatever it was. Like it was just so... 
it was so organic and we were playing together so often that that, you know, that body of music all kind of came out of this like one organism that we formed for a while. Um, so it's the, the cohesiveness isn't forced at all. It's really, it's really natural. And, um, and I think dur the, during the recording of that album, we were all in a, in that common headspace as well. So it, that's, that's why it feels cohesive. You know, despite, despite its flaws, it does have that. It feels, um, very much naturally like this, this album is a body of work. It's not just a, a compilation of songs. Right. Yeah. I was saying everything about it to me just seems like a thought, well thought out, executed, like it's a real like album, like even from the way it's the, the lyrics, the, the recording, the, the layout, everything about it just clicks. Um, it's, yeah, it's like a real statement. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's, I don't know. To me, it's like a real, it's a real artistic statement. It's not just 10 songs thrown on a record or something. I think at the time it sounded like incredibly fresh too, because probably, probably there, there were probably like a million, um, you know, kids out there like me who are feeling burnt on hardcore, where it was going, what it sounded like and getting tired of it. And along comes into another with this other, it was a whole, it well, was like if, if three chord hardcore, four chord hardcore was happening and it was very like, like Sammy said on one of your um, episodes, it's like caveman shit. Mm -hmm. Into another yeah. came along and it was like the most colorful music to me. I was like, uh -huh. oh, this is amazing, beautiful, melodic. The lyrics mean something. Richie can sing his ass off. Like I was saying earlier, everybody can play. And it was really exciting to me because I was like, oh, this is like what a, I think this is what a, a, a professional band is, sounds like, you know what I mean? Wow. Well, for me, as a 17-year-old as, as a discovering this record, all I had really been exposed to before that was caveman hardcore, right. you know, uh, whether it be uh bands and that's not to say Chain of Strength is a caveman hardcore at all, but like that was maybe the most progressive hardcore record I had heard at the time, or maybe something like Born Against and Rorschach, like those weirdo other New York City type bands. And then I get hit by, literally hit by running into walls and like a grenade exploded in my head as a 17 year old and was like, holy fuck, this is something else entirely that I should now be paying attention to. Oh, thanks buddy, that's cool. And we realized like in the writing of it that the music was sort of like, I, I guess in terms of like being, having like a, a different, being, it was different. It was, it was, you know, uh, then I think what a lot of people were used to trying to have like a, something that represented it, the artwork for the music. Richie um, knew a great artist called, Wal his name's Wallpaper. Okay, so and, I have a list of things I want to talk about today and Wallpaper is actually on there because I would like to discuss length so about yeah wallpaper. so wallpaper was a friend i was um i was he was always such a charismatic person to me and i always had this uh just sort of fascination for better or for worse with the new york club kids yeah and same. um and you know and i kind of knew those people through 
you know, I, for years I had worked at the Pyramid Club, working the door and sometimes DJing and sometimes working security. And, and so characters like Michael Alec and a lot of the club kids were always coming through there. And, and Walt always, like, from the first time I met him, just seemed like um, not only just the, the, the nicest, warmest, most talented, smartest guy, but, but there, there was something I felt in common with him. There was this certain sort of like, like sadness or something, or just like this taciturn way about him, just something I, I connected to. So we used to start, we started talking a lot about whatever, just art and culture and New York and, and stuff. And, and um, I remember going to visit him and, uh, and his roommates and stuff at the Chelsea hotel and, and, and then seeing a lot of his art, I had seen a bit of it, but seeing a lot of it hanging and I was just, um, you know, I was just blown away. I had a real visceral connection to his art, to his paintings and his drawings. And, and, uh, and then, yeah, just those two particular works, um, just really separate pieces. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was sort of like a vertical diptych where one was just one narrow kind of piece. So it really was like one, it could have been one, you know, contiguous painting, but it was, it was, it was two, it was made up of two, but it really spoke to me. And I really, for me, visually, it really connected to this, this um, almost amorphous, crazy, you know, swirling uh, organism that Ignorus was turning into. Um, and uh, yeah, I just felt like that has to be the artwork for. Cause he, yeah. he had, I remember going to the Chelsea with you he was at the yeah. Chelsea Hotel, and and uh, he showed you or showed us uh, a couple of different pieces. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think like that one was connecting yeah. was pretty outstanding. Obviously, yeah, it was something about getting lost in those those stripes of color. Those just that sort of just waterfall of of, of color, like just getting lost in that visually, and then the just the incredible sort of sadness in those eyes of that you know that, that moth-like creature eyes that like really broken windows yeah yeah well that eyes like broken windows was a was a line that i wrote about a friend who had who had died a few hours before i wrote those words so that yeah. that song without a medium started as a a poem that i wrote almost you know very very shortly after i discovered in the wee hours of the morning that a very very close friend died and um and he he too had those those uh those very sad eyes <laughs> so that i seem to i've always mm -hmm. been fascinated with new york club kids i mean i remember watching them on geraldo and sally jesse or uh joan rivers <laughs> like i and all the way then watching party monster and then a couple of years ago started following walt paper on instagram to see you know what he's doing currently and putting out a book and shirts and still yeah. making prints and yeah. stuff like what a great artist yeah, yeah. and was walt paper in the poison fingers video yeah as well okay. as yes. this guy another fixture yeah. in nightlife this another guy fixture in nightlife. yep yeah yeah uh, so i guess we could jump to talking about that video because that it was like visually such an interesting component to this album for me. Um, it's dark, it's heavy, it shows all of you guys in your playing element, which, you know, again, for me, 
like I might not have been able to access um, directly. It has a, a little bit of a feel of the Metallica one video to me sometimes because of the uh, black and white and a lot of the hair flying around with the head banging and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the interspersed, almost like, which would come later, the David Fincher like type nine inch nails imagery of, you know, the club kids and the little girl and like the taxidermy bird. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting video. Was, was that the only like professional video component that existed with this record? Oh yeah. 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 And, and, and that it's funny. So the video came about, so, um, the the man who shot that video, my friend Tim Ives, he went on to be one of the best DPs in the business. He he shot he shot all the uh, episodes of Stranger Things and oh, wow. and an entire season of House of Cards and and Girls and and a male and he's one of the biggest uh, DPs in the business. And uh, and the storyboard just just with the with the taxidermy bird and and, and the girl and everything that. I, collaborated with a, a friend of mine named Noah Bogan who who dabbled in like a million different things and at that point in his life he was really into just visual arts and filmmaking and stuff like that so um but the you know the for me the strongest visuals actually involved Walt and how photogenic he was and how you know what a compelling figure on camera he was you know the visuals apart from like the band playing and stuff because I do feel like the the performance footage of the band in that video really does uh, move with the music. It doesn't feel yeah. like very often when you see bands, you know, just faking it. Um, I don't know if it, 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 we feel really in the moment in, in that, but, um, but yeah, it was cool. Of course it was made on an absolute shoestring of a, but on, you know, no budget at all. So it, I, I think we, we made the best video we could what, make. with where was, that? It was, no was a pier on the West side was somewhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was. It was, it was a, exactly. It was a pier on the Hudson, um, right. which has since, you know, been sort of uh, refurbished and fit out. Um, and then we shot a lot of it uh, on Perry Street at Noah's apartment, um, and and we shot some of it um, on the on the street in actually pushing the pram. I think was on a street in Brooklyn. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, most of it was in the West Village and on the Hudson River. Yeah, one, one thing um, outside, sorry to backtrack a second, I think like speaking to, to about Walt though, and, and um, one, of the, one of the interesting things was, you know, how I think how, how giving he was in terms of, I remember taking the artwork with Richie uh, out of the Chelsea, like both of those pieces, carrying them, this giant piece. It's huge. Down, Third Street. It's huge. Because yeah. at the time, you know, we, we, we didn't have like a digital photography. There was no digital photography. We didn't have any, you know, way to photograph this thing to send to Revelation. So we had to go. I, Rich, I don't remember where we took it to, but I remember literally carrying this down a busy street. On yeah, we had, to, we had to bring it to a place where they had a diffuser where they could totally evenly light it. Yeah. When they We're shot it. So, there, so, yeah. yeah and and uh, so, yeah, and we had to capture it you know, uh, we, we then had to do a very, very high resolution, uh, scan of the, we did like a, I think like a chroma positive and did like a 3200 DPI scan of it or something. Cause you know, it was shot on 35 millimeter film. So we had to, you know, just imagine letting that piece go. 
you know, like here, like these, these guys are going to take this yeah. out. And place. how generous yeah. he was with his time, like making the video. I mean, the amount of time he put into just, you know, getting himself ready and just like wardrobe and hair and makeup and, and just the hours and hours and hours of work. I and mean, it's just unbelievable generosity. Just yeah. never yeah. forgot that. Revelation, I believe it's Revelation, has posted a photo of the person who owns the painting now. And it's big. I mean, it's like yeah. four feet by four yeah. feet. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's so cool to see. Yeah. 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 Um, um, yeah, and wallpaper in that video, not to keep you know going on about it, but he looks so interesting for the time, yeah. for 1994, like lip piercings and tattoos and all that. Like it really was like a, such a different something to see than what we as hardcore yeah. kids were normally exposed to. And also, and total androgyny. And, and also, you know, just, yeah. Um, yeah. And just in so many ways, he was so incredibly ahead of his time. He was like a total visionary. I think like, you know, getting back to the music a little bit since PT, yeah. where we were, we had, you know, briefly discussed like, um, like the time period of making the music. And I'm just, I'm curious for like what, you know, I might not be remembering Pete, like when you thought like we started coming up uh, with a lot of that stuff. I was mentioning drowning as being an early one that we had started uh, at, a, at, a, at one of the rooms, of the music building. But what are your recollections? Do you have like recollections of like what, like the time period in which we started and the writing process for it? Yeah, no, it, it, right. It was some older songs that we'd been kicking around for, I mean, you know, a couple of years at that point, I suppose. Um, it took us, uh, we recorded that, what, in 93, I think, right? Something like that. Yeah. 92 and 93. What yeah. The, I mean, we, we, we just had, we rehearsed a lot. Like we would rehearse what three or four times a week for. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Four hours yeah. We were just constantly rehearsing. Yeah. We were but just, I, yeah, yeah. I feel like right, pouring, yeah. pouring ideas into our pot and, uh, you know, right. some stuff would get I us feel going like a lot and of we those, would work yeah. a lot on it. Right. Right. We would like, we'd have like someone like you or, 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 or Tony or Richard or I would have like ideas and we just sort of like meld them together. And we definitely, like I was saying how there's like different versions of drowning. Cause we had carried that around for a while. I don't really remember when we had gotten to poison fingers or like the, some of like the order of stuff, like running into walls, there's so many parts. And I don't remember exactly like trying to, when, how we came up with like the order that, like, you know, um, I don't know if you do, but it's like, it, it, I I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It was, I think it was a bunch of Bono. Bono would always come yeah, in I remember, like yep. a groove in his head and he would just be all over it. And we would, we right. would pound away at it for a while and add right. little bits. Yeah. Like metal, metal shapers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I do. Re I remember some things about that. I remember with drowning, it was that, that chord, that opening chord, and how 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 full and broad spectrum that chord feels. I remember that was like that letting that sustain over that throbbing, you know, toms and 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 that throbbing beat and everything was like it feels like each song had like a little thesis that we built on or whatever. You know, yeah. um, I mean, I can remember the the one sort of riff I remember uh, bringing in was the um, the the William that that sort of I understand oh. part like and that yeah. was just a thing that I would always just 
very often if I was sitting there with you, Drew, and I would like pick up a guitar or peace guitar or whatever, that was just this little thing I used to just always play. And like, I remember when we heard Tony uh, come in with that, you know, that, or it was just like these, I feel like these riffs were just swirling around with all of us for so long. And we were playing yeah. together so often that I feel like there were tons of these main themes and, you know, verses and choruses and bridges and stuff that were just in this big gumbo. And then we started like pulling them out and assembling yeah. them and, and then like discarding some of them. And it was just, it felt really organic. It didn't feel like, Oh guys, we got to make an album. So let's, let's write 10 songs or. Yeah, it was, it was a very organic process more so way more so than seamless would turn out to be, um, which felt, you know, like we, we were under the, obviously under the gun a lot more, but speaking of William, there is a perfect example of a song that we, that had carried over from we, I have, you know, some footage uh, that that exists from CBGBs, like in our, like our really earliest shows where we're ending the show with William um, uh, pretty much in the same version. So we, I think we was like Peter was saying, like a lot of this material existed over time. And then we kind of fleshed out the rest of the record yeah. uh, towards, towards like, you know, getting closer to recording. We, 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 you know, it was a very organic process, but yeah, William was, was something we had for a long time that we were looking to find a home, a record recorded home for it, you know? Um, and uh, I think that it, we just waited for the right uh, atmosphere of the record and it fit in within the, the atmosphere of that record sure so did you when you guys were writing this record and everything and did you know like were, were you writing it knowing that like okay this is still going to be on revelation or were you writing it thinking oh well maybe yeah we'll yeah see. no i don't think we were i don't yeah and, and just so nothing's misconstrued i don't think we were ever writing to try and get on a major label you know it's and not that not that it's a bad thing to do that and right. and of course when you see it happen to your friends you wonder like Gee, I wonder why it's not, you know, happening for us. But then again, I kind of understand it. No, no, we, 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 yeah, we, we definitely knew we had a great relationship and still do with Jordan and with Rev and, and, uh, and knew it would be on Revelation. But, but then again, we were always, we never, ever, um, weighed into the equation like, oh, we have to make this record for aficionados of Revelation because we were always, a very weird square peg right on that roster so um which was okay with us but yeah we, we I mean, can you imagine writing a a record that strange for a major label to go like here listen to this you know that's that, that's <laughs> I mean, what i was saying it's me, so good yeah. but it's like it's like how like um which we talked about it came up i think when we talked to alan cage like yeah. It's like Shudder to Think Pony Express record it's an mm -hmm. amazing record yeah. but it's just so yeah, I mean, to, for, for me, like, I lyrically, I can tell you, I never, ever even thought about, like, the end user or or it being popular. I mean, I was, I had lines in there, like, priests rape children, Jesus loves that. Like, yeah. I, ne I never, ever even thought for a second about, uh, you know, making this thing sellable or, like, <laughs> even, even, even digestible. I love that. You're trying to get Christian protests to yeah, increase like, uh, visibility, you know? What's that, Jeremy? Like those, it felt like those lyrics were like intensely personal. And yeah. I think that if you can, if you can do that and you're feeling your own lyrics, obviously, and, and then they touch, you know, they touch other people when you're playing shows or when they hear the record, 
you've you've like it's like lightning striking you know you've you've, you've sparked on something amazing but um, that's so true i but, get chills that, when you like, say that i remember thinking um that song ungodly in particular which is extremely timely right now uh yeah, yeah. but i remember sitting at cbgb's with richie and norm and steve reddy and noah i think and i was sitting i was selling t-shirts for you guys and there was a conversation about like deities and gods and Catholicism. And I was like, this is really interesting. Cause like where I came from, the, the hardcore kids didn't sit around and talk about stuff like this, but, but yeah. this music is inspiring this like really heavy conversation, which I thought wow. was really interesting. And, you know, we had, I was Mormon and we had people who were Hare Krishnas and people who had come from a Catholic background all in this conversation together. And I was like, this is amazing. And I think that that's what, that's what a good song with, with awesome lyrics can do. It's timeless too. Like wow. you said, it's, it's, I sat, so I've had this album in some way, shape or form for, you know, over 20 years. And I sat shortly before we recorded and I actually, you know, you don't really do this much anymore. I've sat with the lyrics and I've got to say, I'm not pandering to you. I, I got, I got choked up during a lot of it. I was like, I mean, it's it just, it's brilliant. It's honestly just the, the way everything just convalesces into the, this piece of music. I was just like, I was just sitting there reading the lyrics and listening to the, to the, the, the drumming and the bass playing and the guitar playing and the singing. And I was like, just speechless. And um, I think that's really a testament to amazing art. Oh, thank, and, um, thank you, man. I, I, yeah, that's that's one, of the, one of the things I think that, you know, um, is it, that I've always loved about the into another in the, in the time that we had together with some of this stuff is that I, that the four of us were so uh, integral to the, to the, all of, the music there was no you know it's like you can't take any one of the people out of that time period and yeah. get the same result it's just like you know whether it's peter richie or tony or you know on some level what i was doing with them um you know i just no, nah, not on some level yeah it wouldn't it, be the same without that was yeah. that was very deft false humility there i love that that was great i think yeah. that uh, that going to a lot of these shows post you know the record coming out and being with these guys for three months on the road it was really exciting to see um a couple things you know how hardcore kids lots of dudes in the pit sing with their fingers in the air along with hardcore bands well it was the first time that i started to see a lot of girls and women at the shows um, and they were also down in the front and everybody was singing along to the lyrics in a hardcore style, but obviously trying to sing in to some degree or another. And <laughs> that was really exciting because I was like, oh, everybody's feeling the lyrics. And, and, you know, when the whole room feels the lyrics and the music together, like it's something special. Um, and then I do remember being at some sound checks and watching. And I thought this was the most odd thing because I had never done this, but watching Drew and Tony work on songs just as a rhythm section. And I thought that was incredible. Tony had this, you know, obviously Drew's drumming is incredibly musical, right? Every fill like 
Every fill is well thought out. It's all there. The beats are really cool. Um, and then Tony had this amazing, like monstrous bass sound, amazingly melodic. And I really like on my best days, I would say I tried to emulate some of what he was doing, but it was, you know, nobody could, nobody, I've never seen anyone play like Tony did, but um, so watching these guys put together songs like that, when they're talking about how there were all these swirling riffs that would come together, I could see the songs. I think when I was out with these guys, they were working on uh, a new, one of the new songs was um, the amphibian in love. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you guys were, you guys would work on that at soundcheck quite often. And I was just like, yeah you know, falling in love with the song, like, oh, this is going to be a doozy. These are wow. like, amazing riffs. So it was really fun. Thank that's you for great. sharing that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's cool, man. It's good to hear that. But I, and I think it speaks to the fact that what we were saying earlier was that in terms of trying to get stuff done, we were playing so much. I mean, I think like back at that time period, we were, we were you know, we were just doing months and months out of the year. So in order to get the music done, we do a lot of the stuff on the road. And sometimes, you know, in my experience, that's the best time to be writing because you're at your sharpest. So a lot of that stuff came from our, our road miles and, uh, oh, yeah. and working, working at, oh, at those moments. Yeah. Also, as far as just road miles and, and chops and stuff and just doing something really often, to, to your point, Jeremy, when I would hear like Tony on his own or Drew on his own or Pete on his own, each one of those guys individually for me, if they started playing their instrument, it, 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 I didn't feel like I was just hearing this isolated instrument. They could just fill a room and like fill this whole sort of spectrum of like everything you needed. It, it felt like each one of them playing solo felt like a, like a, a finished full spectrum piece of music to me. So it was just incredible. Like, um, you know, it was so often the lyric writing process would, would happen after the these songs would start to gel and and i feel like there's no way uh, i could have gotten to places i i got to lyrically without this like unbelievable synergy of just like these you know these musicians i was totally in awe of um so it was it was it was that was just such a you know um you know like i felt like we had this embarrassment of riches of just like these talented musicians which is you know it's not always the case i've been in, in in a bunch of bands and and that was the only time i felt like we're like any one of these guys can just like fill a venue with like you know so much emotion just by himself and it's just i don't know it felt really incredible to me you know it, it, it's interesting you know when, when we're talking about that talking about you know listening to each other play in the studio setup that we recorded Ignorus, it was a small one room, uh, very, it was a, t a small live room and then a small uh, console room. So the only place to go sit was like this little outside waiting area. It was a place called Shelter Island Sound. I believe it was Sean, Sean Colvin's studio and they had an office up there. So when we weren't tracking, we like whether it was like Tony or, or, or Peter or Rich, like because I did my tracks live with them, but we would sit like the rest, a lot of times the rest of us would sit outside the studio room uh, in, in the waiting area where we'd be eating or something. We'd be listening to each other. I remember like listening to Peter doing stuff like, you know, in Poison Fingers, just hearing that. Junk, 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 junk. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you're just getting chills hearing these. Yeah, I'm getting chills like, hearing you say this. Yeah, I, You know, I remember it so well, like hearing Tony so doing the bass in like, 
in uh in drowning like doing that dun 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 but dun but dun but you get to hear these fucking guys doing this stuff or like you know like you know Richie singing something from like anything on it you know and you know it was such a cool experience and I remember I was like you know whether we're kind of like joking about each other like Peter what was the one that Tony was he it was such it was like a I think maybe the beginning of running into walls he would we'd heard it so many times and he'd be like there Peter be like there yeah. it goes again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he played it like 10,000 times. Yeah. Uh, we figured out that his bass neck w- would uh, bend out of tune if he was leaning back. Yeah, so after a while, we uh, we had to make him sit up straight so we could get nice, uh, clean, in tune takes. We had to correct Tony's <laughs> posture. <laughs> it's amazing. I remember that now. Yeah, we we actually to get a lot of that stuff with uh, with bass guitar. I remember we were like, you know, borrowing a lot of gears, getting different things sent up. I think like trying to wow, amazing, look at Tony, <laughs> classic. Um, but we were, oh, yeah. I think, especially with the ampl- amplification, you know, experimenting with different stuff to try to like figure out what was going to sound the best for a lot of it. I remember you guys getting getting some different amps and stuff for it. And, I think we, yeah, we, I, I borrowed a nice uh, Saldano. Actually, Ray, our uh, our uh, very finicky engineer, uh, made sure we had right gear that he would be willing to put right. on his tape. Absolutely, because we did do it. To, that was like the last. That was, you know, uh, I believe that was a just we used. Yeah, we used. We were that was to tape, and then that was on a Neve console. Like MCI, first, yeah, yeah. It was a nice console. It was unfortunately like. For me, it was a really difficult uh, record uh, in that it was the first time in my tr- in my drumming thus far since like hardcore into all the stuff we we're doing that I ever used a metronome because we wanted this to be a much more exact record. So you're gonna figure like I'm sitting in, in in the middle of like these sort of progressive songs that have all these different time signatures and have this weird movement, and I'm like, you know, at that time I'm like 22 years old. 21, 21, 22. And I, I was like, fuck, I got to use this metronome for the first time. Now it's like, you know, it's second nature. But for that record, I remember struggling uh, to some degree thinking like trying to get these parts that move around a lot, have all these different, you think of how many parts are running into walls or trying to get that stuff with poison fingers to that. So that was, um, that was a bit of an undertaking at that moment, you know? Especially because there was a grip on that song once that I remember. I remember we were playing in like Germany or something and, Right. And, and we, we got it, all the confusing parts and running into walls, as you're saying. One time, right. yeah, we, we got a little uh, uh, out of sync, but we, yeah, we, we, we recovered could, nicely. We, <laughs> you have to try to make those recoveries when you have like, you know, eight different parts going on in there. Yeah. Some were very strange, strange times, but um, there was also no Pro Tools. <laughs> so, you know, at that moment. So, you know, we'd have to do takes of these songs and try to get them, uh, you know, you, you're not doing that many. And any edits you're doing, which you try to do as few as possible because they're tape edits. Um, so that there was a lot of pressure on that record. There was definitely like, you know, in terms of the, you know, getting into more of like, you know, the process of recording it. I wanted to talk, I wanted to actually talk about um, Ray Martin and uh, is it uh, Shelter, Shelter Island Sound, because I know you did the, the first album with Fury mm-hmm. and uh, Creepy EP you did at West Beach, over, right. um, you know, in, in California. What, uh, 
Were you looking at any other places to, to go for this one? Was there ever talk of doing this one with Don Fury? Was it a scheduling thing? Or were you just like, hey, let's try, you know, someone else? Because one thing I've noticed, all all the records, all the proper into another releases are done at different, you know, with different studios, different producers or engineers. Yeah, I, I think this fell, fell together more because, um, you know, my, my friend Todd knew Ray as, as a, a, an engineer okay. who really liked to work with and... We liked the, the the desk that he had at that studio. So it was just, yeah, I mean, it wasn't like we, we had made a list and we're vetting all these studios. Maybe maybe we should have uh, over the years done that. But it, it all just also fell together pretty organically through through friends. Really. No, it sounds it sounds fantastic. So I don't think I don't think you should have. No, there's it's interesting. I think it has a sound to it, but there's definitely aspects of it that to this day, you know, confound me a little bit because yeah. I was it was a little inexper- I was kind of inexperienced at the time with trying to come up with like or sticking up for myself in a studio. And um, I remember having you know like certain uh, things like drum tuning taken from me, and like it wasn't really the sound I was using for live. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, you trusted somebody else on the drum tuning and, and you regret yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the succinct way of putting it. You know, I was like and I, I, I think like it, I would do all my stuff for live. Like I didn't have a tech at that point uh, through there. Yeah. So I, I went into the studio and I was just like, OK, um, I'm going to relinquish this. I, but again, it's a learning experience from that. And it does sound interesting within the framework of the record. And I have to appreciate that it has its own sound. Um, but of course, you know, with like the yeah. number of years in between, I would go back and, and do things differently. So I'm glad you guys think it sounds good. But I, to me, there's like, you know, it was a learning experience to be able yeah, to suffer for myself here. I know. So I totally same here. I, I, you know, since that record, I subsequently learned, like, I like a totally different EQ curve on my, in fact, I like a much flatter EQ. I like a different mic. So like, that was very much a learning experience. Like the, uh, there were, I feel like I learned more from mistakes on that, but I think, I, I think everyone hears the flaws in their own recordings right. uh, more. Right. They're more pronounced to the, uh, to, to so, the artist than to the audience. So not mm-hmm. about songwriting, whatever of the, cause you know, like I mentioned, they're all done different studios. Do you have one? Is there one into another record where you're like, okay, this sounds exactly how i wanted it to come out sounding for me it's the last one <laughs> omens i think which was basically recorded pretty much live except yeah redoing yeah. the scratch vocal it's an interesting statement yeah i don't know i don't know i don't know yeah i i, I i'm never happy seamless sounds it. pretty good you know <laughs> which one's good recording which one seamless yeah, seamless sounds good yeah 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 I tend to, I tend to like, like if we had been able to continue it, I, I really liked aspects of the first one. The, like, I, I like, I, I felt like at least if we had continued at, through Creepy EP, uh, I would be interesting to hear it, how, how Creepy EP would have sounded at, at Don's studio. Um, at this point, I, I think Ignorus took on a life of its own, so I would never say no. But yeah, yeah I mean... Seamless is, is, is cool. I, I like the sounds on it in terms of what I think a record probably should sound like in terms of power. And Omen oh, yeah, is great. Say, yeah. But, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's just been the nature, I think, of like we got saddled with a situation where we never were like 
properly placed into a particular studio. We didn't have a helping hand with it. So we, we, we got going back to an earlier statement about, did you guys think you were going to get signed from this record or were you trying to, I think that it, we were less about the records and more about in terms of getting signed. We got signed off our live shows. We got signed because people were coming to uh, our shows. And at that point in time, they, there were, they were seeing like, there's a good crowd and people are loving this music. That's connecting, what we got to connecting to it. Like, like Jeremy yeah. said, you know, you're having yeah. all types of people, you right. know, men, like, women, whatever, and hardcore people, metal people, yeah. you know, indie yeah. connecting. I, and that's the main, you know, what? Thing. I would say this though, about just about the, just the sonic experience of an album. So sort of to Drew's point, I think there are, you know, a couple of records that sound a little more polished, but for me, the mm -hmm. ones that have a vibe that really move me are, not necessarily the so the, the ones to me that have a real vibe that you know and and a lot of like darkness and a lot that are, are that first album and ignore us those yeah. two albums for me just the experience of listening to them the, and the way that they sound not the professionalism and the polish but just the the experience that sonically for me yeah, the, they, the vibe is like an intimacy is, is yeah. most palpable yeah yeah, yeah for, for, with those that's two. what I was hinting at too with like the fact that I love the recording and I think the way it sounds you know the way it opens up with you know the the, the bass it literally yeah. just sounds like you guys were in the rehearsal space yeah it, no, I, yeah I, I think the record and then sounds you guys great. all just jumped yeah. in and and then kept going exactly yeah I mean right it's um Right, it's not the most polished sounding record, but I, I, that's a good thing. I don't, yeah, I I like the uh, sort of artifacts of of almost. Uh, it's not that it was like homemade, but I mean, Ray wasn't. Uh, you know, he was a young guy like us at the time. Maybe he was even younger than us. Uh, and um, I mean, we he used excellent microphones and put a lot of care into into making a good recording. I mean, the the guitar sound you know he did a great job with that it was a borrowed yeah. 1957 les paul and a oh right yeah a soldano uh slo 100 uh lead head um you know I, I i would maybe change the tone of it a little bit but basically it sounds rad you know i mean that guitar just screamed i was a little sorry it wasn't my guitar that's <laughs> like <laughs> I wish it was my guitar in that record yeah but uh um, you know, that was great. Yeah. The drums, you know, the drums are maybe a little tweaky, but it's nothing that and, and somebody who isn't an utter nitpicker like us would notice, you know, I mean, we just right. have such a You're close connection to it. Own. Most people would gloss right over it, you know? Yeah. It was yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's the atmosphere. It was a really good time for us as a band. I mean, the, the name Ignorance is a little bit of a poke at, at what was going on around us, uh, you know, with our, our, our friends, uh, ending up on major labels. And we, we were really, uh, kind of a, a, a tight organization at that point with each other where, you know, it was just a good time relationship wise for us. And we were, we felt like renegades, like we're going to do our crazy art the way we want it. And so what if, you know, this band or that band uh, appears to be uh, showing up on MTV or whatever. Uh, so, you know, there's yeah. this kind of a uh, obstinate spirit in it. And, uh, you know, like we were saying, that that sort of intimacy. It's very simple. There's no guitar overdubs. There's only only in um, in uh, uh, two snowflakes is the only overdub uh, on the record. So right. it's very raw and live. It's kind of like Van Halen aesthetic. You know, it's just like 
real real live band in the studio was was our idea yeah 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 we Jer- talked about that before you hopped jeremy, on. We saying, uh, jeremy brought that up uh if you want to share with them jeremy your yeah i was of, ta- uh, i was listening to it as i was like driving down the canyon today out of the mountains and i was like I, remembering that underneath all the leads there's not a rhythm guitar track it's just tony and drew as the rhythm section filling in the gaps which is a ballsy move i think because a lot of people tend to like we're going to put another rhythm track underneath this lead to to beef up the sound no, I, don't exactly. need, I don't think it needs beefing the the leads are very melodic and you want to pay attention to them everything's really interesting you know it's like a it's a four-way tie and into another it's like all everybody's like <laughs> lots of talent right. happening at the same time and everything is interesting to listen to like what Richie was saying, everybody wants to hold up their corner of the stadium, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, I think it's true. The stadium? That's totally true. That's, that's one of the things that I found exciting about traveling with you guys. When I was the age I was, I was soaking in as much information as I could about being in a band. And you guys were like, God, it was like everybody was like at the top of their game. It was really fun to see. And the songs were awesome. And so it was a good sort of musical education for me too. I loved it. Wow. Thanks. Thanks, Jeremy. That's, that means a lot, especially since, you know, you went on to do handsome and many other brilliant things. Yeah, it it means, it does mean a great deal. Seriously. And Pete, I would, I would just, I would replace exactly what you said, but I would replace a stadium with a different uh, arch, uh, architecture word, which is vomitorium. I I always thought of myself as holding (laughs) up. Vomitorium, which you know is, is is part of many many stadia, but uh, yeah, we're, we're more vomitorium than stadium. I'll settle for sanatorium. Okay. <laughs> you know, the other question I had about artwork was uh, the back cover drawing by Ida Pearl. Right. And if if memory serves me, you had a bass drum cover with that artwork. Did Ida Pearl draw that directly onto the the bass drum head? It was a different, uh, I, I love what I not, was, Yeah, it wasn't that same one, right? But it was something And I went over that, to yeah. meet with her after, uh, during that, in that time period, because I was like, you know, we're going to go out and tour on this record. And I went had some affiliated artwork to the record. So we kind of, uh, one afternoon, looked over some of her stuff, got some ideas. I think like it might've been an original idea. Um, and she kind of plotted it out for me. And I left her with a drum head and, uh, yeah, she she did me right. It was uh, one of my favorites. I mean, that you could see in some of the video, I guess wherever whatever platform you're seeing from that time, um, you could see like that that drum head in. You know, it's great. It's a good one. I wish I still had it. I wish I had, you know, a couple of those. But um, but yeah, uh, you know, she was she did some. I think she might have done some uh, stuff for her t-shirts too, right, Rich? Like on the back of some shirts, we had Ida stuff as well. Ida uh, still to this day is really prolific and makes incredible art and and books, children's books and uh, yeah. But she did some T-shirt art for us as well, and um, and she's still doing amazing stuff. and And her style is constantly evolving, and she's she's really a great artist, a prolific artist to this day. And then, so the back cover, you know, it's it's a contrast to the front cover that has the color back cover has the black and white and then on this crazy gatefold of the 12 inch and then real small in the cassette 
there's this really interesting photo of all of you in a bed. And then that's how was, we slept. There that's was how posters, posters <laughs> around the time that was this he, no from a different he, angle. As, well, to Pete's point, it was a really good time in our relationship. Um, <laughs> and uh, you just woke up like that one morning after he just he like, set, set up the camera. Many more, many more. That was like anymore. that was like t-ball. I, I was so set up, I couldn't. Um, but yeah, um, uh, so that that was a uh, a a uh, a sleigh bed, king size sleigh bed owned by my friend uh, Noah at 45 Perry street. And that's, that's the apartment in which we shot a lot of the, uh, poison fingers video. But, um, I think it was yeah. Noah's idea. He said, everybody get in the bed, take your yeah. shirts off. <laughs> sure. Yep. Yeah. Just yeah. your shirts. I remember that, I remember yeah. that Tony's, uh, chest hair is featured pretty prominently in that picture it's too. Glowing. Right? They, glowing. They, they did. He was, uh, he was a very, a hirsute macho man. And I was, I was, <laughs> I remember being envious because I have a relatively bald chest. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> Sorry. I'm showing how I'm envious you know, what's of you. Sen- what vulnerable and sensitive, uh, you know? That's absolutely true, though. It's amazing because you know, the whole, the whole, the whole thing of like talking earlier about it is, uh, you know, it it come in the in hindsight now. It's like, wow, you know, I think that it was like a good thing to go for because the record is so met like fractured in terms of like, you know, you listen to it. It's, it's very, uh, laid bare. Everything, everything's here. <laughs> and there, these guys are willing to get into bed together with their shirts off and just cuddle. And, uh, <laughs> that was our, our idealistic utopian outlook for that record. I think it's cool. It's cool. It's very seventies yeah. glam. I think it works perfectly for the record. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> totally. that- it's a, definitely of, a 70s glamour record. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's fair to say that, you know, while uh, speaking of 70s glam, while I would like to consider ourselves, you know, like the, the suite of post hardcore, I think we're more like the sparks, <laughs> the sparks of post hardcore. So we will, uh, yeah. You know, something else we do, uh, you, you've all experienced this, some of you more than others, Drew, but we always get to hot tracks. I had an idea this morning as I'm listening to this record at full blast at fucking 8 a.m. There's a lot of hot licks on this record. There are some guitar parts that just fucking hit you out of nowhere. So Peter (laughs) in particular, anybody can jump in. Ray wouldn't let me cut that one up. He was like, you have to do it. If you want to put that on the record, you have to do it in one take. (laughs) Yeah. I want to know what's your favorite guitar lick or licks from this record like what do you play where you're like i you know and not to not to you know in an egotistical way but like man i fucking nailed that solo or like man that guitar part was so crazy that i can't even barely play it live like what tell me about uh your favorite guitar stuff on that record yeah, that maritime murder thing. That's I, I have a hard time playing that. That's the one he was like, "No, you have to play that. You can't. We can't yeah. cut that up because sometimes <laughs> you cheat and cut things up." But now there's a lot of stuff that that came out real real sweet, like um, uh, uh, you know, ungodly. Even though it's not much of a guitar solo, just it, it, a great thing about that that guitar rig. It was it was so sensitive. It was like a condens. It had a big expensive condenser mic on it, and you could hear every little nuance, every little you know slide across a fret or everything uh 
And so, uh, which I really love, uh, you know, you're talking about seventies records. Uh, that's what's so great about a lot of those is almost like the mistakes and, and, you know, things like that make it sound so like rich. And, uh, so we got a lot of good stuff like that on there. Um, you know, just cool feedback and the, the uh, like the tone and the vibe and everything. It, yeah, it all it all came together. We did it really fast. The guitar tracks, I think we did in like two days or something. Jesus Christ! Wow. Yeah, <laughs> we were I, the, we were. We were I love the guitar just, on Ungodly. Yeah, you know, I mean, the drums went down. I think pretty quick. The bass took a little longer than than we expected because usually that just slaps right down. I mean, I don't I don't know how long we even worked on that record. It wasn't it wasn't very. It was long. very short. We did like we probably tracked all the music in like four or five days. But we were yeah, we were well rehearsed and our all our chops were up good and uh, I, I forget if we had played some shows before that or something but we we were in in good working order and so we we were able to you know get get good takes pretty quickly on stuff um, and uh, you know I don't know if we had like the bargain evening hours or something I feel like we were always yeah. going in there like at odd times and stuff but. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of uh, nifty things that ended up on there that that uh, you know I'm real happy about. And uh, like I said, you the fact that there's no other, you know, like Jeremy was saying, there's no rhythm guitars or anything. You really you really hear all the details of all the instruments. Uh, um, you know, nothing that gets clattered over. <laughs> I, I I absolutely love the guitar on Ungodly so much. I feel like it's so emotionally locked into the song and, and Pete, the way you let things swell and then decay and, and just you use like, it feels like you're using so much more than just notes and like every little pull off and every, the, the, just the right amount of feeding back or like volume, like swelling or receding. It's just, for me, the guitar is so, is so soulful and, uh, and like raw and emotional on ungodly I'm really yeah I, i'm a side b guy i i think that uh <laughs> <laughs> i am too I don't, I don't, I side b. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, the guitar i think the guitar on william uh is always stunning to me i, I still go back and listen yeah. for, for mm -hmm. and it's tied for with that and and laughing at oblivion and those two songs between uh what peter's doing and what richie is singing like I still go back and I like you know I it's my 2 a.m. uh music where like every every time I'm having like you know once every few years I'll go back and put those on and those guys will still like make me weepy between those two songs you know they're 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 executed uh, amazingly well emotionally speaking and just technically speaking yeah that's a, laughing in oblivion that's another one I really uh one of my favorite yeah. songs of ours it just uh it's 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 got its own space in music really you know yeah. <laughs> and again it's not very showy but it's it's like dripping with the like you know intensity and richness which uh which i like <laughs> a hard song to play fucking live that's for sure we played you it know, live very like you have to pay attention <laughs> you know drew i swear in my head as i'm driving in my car driving with my knee right. if you were to give me some drumsticks and play along to this air drum to this record and then set me down in front of a kit. I would, I swear in my head, I would do it as good as you because this record has some of the most air drummable things I've ever heard. And we've talked about your use of the bell before. Uh, 
But one of the standout moments of this whole entire record for me is your slow fills. Like cool. kind of Lars Ulrichy. You know, there's not any part on this record where you're like, it's like, it's like really, this fucking hits so hard. And it, 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 it really, I think, adds to the overall vibe of this record. Like, where some records would be like, I'm going to slam some beers and fucking listen to this record. This year, like, I'm going to have a glass of wine. That's a good, it's a, it's a, a cool observation. I mean, thanks for making it because I would second guess those choices for a long time afterwards, a long time. And I feel like only in the last like few years when I've gone back and listened to it, am I more at peace with it? But at the time I felt like trying to, based on how complex a lot of the music was, uh, there were moments a lot in the early into another stuff where I thought I could say more with less than trying to compete with what the guitar was doing, what the bass is doing. Rich is doing a lot. He's all over the spectrum of, of stuff lyrically. Um, and I, there was moments where like, yes, I wanted to try to, a lot of people were doing a lot of showy fills, but there's also those moments where I just like, like, boom, boom, you know, where it's not this big bridge gap with a huge lot of notes, you know, drum wise to play it. Um, and, you know, I would say to myself afterwards, like, am I competent because of that? Or is that incompetent? But I remember listening also to like how, how, how struck I was by stuff like, you know, like Ringo, some of the Ringo Starr stuff uh, <laughs> on Abbey, on uh, Abbey Road. That's and what like, I was going to say. Like a lot of the stuff is not overplaying. Yeah. Ringo um, Thomas. <laughs> you know, so at least during that, I like that. Um, you know, the beats themselves, a lot of them are like enough for me at that moment to try to work on. I was, and I still am in a way like more drawn to like, like um, textural stuff. Like how's the cymbal sound on this? How's, you know, how's this Tom sound, especially within to another, I take a fill on a cymbal rather than try to do as many notes as I could just for, you know, trying to make it a little more interesting. People like Nick Mason from Pink Floyd, or Roger Taylor from Queen, you know, people that are, you know, Clem Burke from Blondie that were doing stuff that to me were, you know, um, more tonal. I had a lot of tonal stuff going on. So, I, think it, I, was, I think it says a lot if people are like Hav are um, wanting to air drum along. I think it, I think it like speaks to that, the musicality of the drums, Drew. I, I think it fits into those songs um, really well. And you're right. There is a, shitload going on with the bass and guitar and vocal right like lots of melody lots of harmony all that kind of thing and um the drums are extremely like air drummable i think it's super musical yeah cool so that's that's the positive way to say it drew is being very passive aggressive there and the translation is those guys overplay and over sing <laughs> i i get i get the whole less is more thing those guys don't so i I felt it my duty to rescue this album <laughs> from Pete and Tony. And I feel like this guy's but 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 but. So, but uh, yeah. So it was more like I can't I can't do crazy riffs. I'm gonna take I'm gonna cop this whole attitude that less is more. Exactly. You like that? I was gonna say, uh, here's my smoke and mirrors. <laughs> so I would, anyone, if anyone can step in and save this from becoming a laughing stock, I yep. can. <laughs> I wanted to ask with uh with like the lyrics and the music because you, you Richie you touched on it earlier with the way ungodly even just as a musical piece without any vocals over it has this 
underlying emotive side to it. It's very emotional. Like I, I feel like just hearing that with no, nothing on it, like an instrumental track of it would, you know, Mm -hmm. probably get people choked up. Do you, when you're, like, do you have lyrics? Like, and, and I apologize if we address this in another one, like oh, okay. in like a notebook or whatever. And then you just kind of feel like, like with ungodly, you heard that music and you went, I know what's going to, what's, what type of lyrical content's going to fit with this song. Yeah. So yeah, I'm glad you asked it. So often, yeah. So I, I, I did always keep scraps of paper and notebooks and journals and stuff. And I, I would write, things just sometimes strings of words sometimes some that were stream of consciousness that i would kind of analyze afterward or sometimes i would very deliberately try and 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 uh you know write a bunch of words and then condense them down to a very short string of words that had a lot of allegory or metaphor in them um you know that things that i was feeling really deeply with ignorus a lot of it a lot of that album for me lyrically is 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 just uh, trying to get out um, in words a lot of uh, things that happened to me in my life since early childhood some, and some really bad things and, uh, and a lot of dark things. And, and there's a lot of introspection in there and a lot of pondering my own mortality and, and, just, and just like the fundamental kind of questions about you know, existential stuff. So a lot of it, yeah. So there would be like, I would have these little sort of blurbs on pieces of paper everywhere that I would kind of nickname in my mind, like, Oh, that's the song about death. And, and, uh, and, and, and that's the, the, the song about being preyed upon as a child and things like that. And, and yeah, so these guys, you know, we, we'd all come into the studio and things would start to happen musically. And, and, and it was almost like a, a nerve would be touched and like, you know, I would feel it like electrically in my body, like, Oh, that's it. That's, that's, that's the song about death. That's it. That this music that's happening right now, I, I know exactly where that piece of paper is. And then it, it would, I would shape it. And then sometimes it would just be, uh, you know, a piece of music that I'd be, that we'd play while we were all rehearsing something that was coming together and I'd be listening in headphones and a melody would hit me and a harmony would hit me. And then, and then the words would, would kind of write themselves and sometimes borrow from those little, those little snippets. So it was, there were various ways in which it would come about. And, and I think the only exceptions to that are the song without a medium, which I wrote as like a poem and, and the song, uh, William, which, um, um, that, that started for me because I, I had that little chorus as like this thing that I would just do on like my acoustic guitar. And then that those words, I understand truth lives in a house on the borderland those words were in my head because I was having these revelatory experiences reading the fiction of William Hope Hodgson. And for some reason it really resonated with me, the, the, his, his novels and short stories and everything and um, really resonated with me. So that was like this germ of a song that I was carrying around me for a while. But those are the only two songs where words, I think they're the only two into another songs where words were down on paper um, almost completely as a lyric before there was a song musically or without a medium, William. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I always, you know, I always wonder, cause as someone who sang for bands, like P, uh, um, I'm not a person that usually has lyrics before, 
like I kind of just like, you know, would hear it and just sort of do things that fit. So I always wonder like these people that have these like, you know, giant notebooks of stuff and they can just do it. I'm always kind of envious of that. Uh, you know, also um, just to represent Tony Bono since he's not with us um, and how important his, his playing of course is on it. I would say that mm -hmm. one of the most amazing things is that no matter where mm -hmm. I go in terms of uh, people that, know into another or people I'm playing with musically, the first thing they go to with into another are Tony's bass lines, you know, like running into walls, you know, and uh, that's usually like the, hey, the first time that someone I'm around or someone sits down on a bass, that's the first into another thing. And I think Tony was an yeah. amazing, an amazing riff writer uh, for the band. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, talking about all this stuff, it's, it's nice to keep him in mind uh, with- So you know, true. Yeah, he's the foundation and superstructure of so many songs. Uh, it's unbelievable. Like, yeah, it, it's and, and like I said, like Tony playing on his own, with none of us, you know, playing along or singing along just filled a room and filled your soul and filled your mind um, and your spirit. It was just like, yeah, so true, Drew. Let's not forget that there's a bass solo on the record in Anxious. I was I was just going to bring that up. That, yeah. that beautiful. It's a lovely yeah. bass solo. Yeah. Good observation, Jeremy. Yeah. Once he got his posture right. Yeah, his, as soon as he sat up straight, it was in tune. It was nice. That bass solo got me choked up hearing it too today. Yeah. yeah. Like I was just, it's just, it's so beautiful. It's just, and musical and just, it's it's kind of cool like the album opens with bass mm -hmm. and it kind of closes with this bass solo in in the song yeah yep. um, i mean the, the the thing you know uh talking about that proficiency and i i think dealing with both peter and tony and rich it's like you know it it it, it was a it was as i think it was you know the youngest person in the band and someone who listening to these guys, you know, speaking about the drum stuff, it, it really pushed me, man. They really made me a better musician uh, through the course of my, my life at that point and was probably the, the most important setup for me going into the future was playing with guys that are, are that good, you know, to their, you know, props to them because, you know, without that, like trying to keep up with those guys was always like a daily adventure. They're, you know, three of the most talented people I ever played with. This record has a lot of interesting things, especially if you listen to it on headphones that kind of pan and there's some like cool effects that you really have to like pay attention to. And one of my favorite things in that regard is the fucking vibra slap. Yes. And anxious. Oh, yeah. like that, point on that record. <laughs> yes. Please talk That's to it. me about the vibra slap and explain <laughs> I mean, to our listeners. Wait, wait, all right. Let's look at it. Man. I had a triangle already. We had change. We had, you know, like you're going to get, you're going to put this thing in front of me and I'm not going to find a place for it. <laughs> I mean, what can I use? It's like supposed to be the cheesiest thing you could ever use. And I'm going to fucking use that thing. I here. think you found, I think you found it in the studio and you came right? running up like, look, a fiber slap. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was exciting. That's still probably my uh, drum-wise, percussion-wise. My that's my uh, that's my moment. <laughs> For the reach. Yeah, but Bono did write a ton of this stuff. He would come in all all enthusiastic. You know, he'd usually have like two parts, and he would just come in and he'd start 
bopping and playing him and, and you know, his in, infectious enthusiasm, you know, we, we would just start uh, hammering away, right? Right yeah. off the bat. We, you know, he was really good about doing that. Sometimes, yeah, yeah Richie and I would come in with parts, but we did, I don't think we sold them as, as uh, happily as Tony did. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, he, yeah. he, was, he was such a, a fountain of inspiration and, uh, and a, a prolific fountain of riffs and themes and, you know, incredible uh, building blocks of songs and entire songs. He, he was just one of the most uh, prolifically creative people. And, and he also was so um, connected to his bass as like a part of his body. And he was, you know, as you guys all know, when he played his bass, he was also, he was playing percussion. He was playing melody. He was playing counterpoint. He was playing like... He was he was kind of a one man band in, in a lot of ways, and um, and definitely he uh, he he so many of the creations he brought in blossomed into uh, songs in short order because they were just so rich and layered and phenomenal and and genuinely emotionally evocative. So we took things out on the road in here. Yeah. We took we took Ignorus when we got out on the road, and it was. It was, it was really, uh, it could be feast or famine. Like there were so many, there were places where like, it's like no one got it. And then there'd be places where like the, the show was packed and it was amazing. And Jeremy, since you're here, I think like you were with us that, that whole time. Thank you for clocking all those road miles with us. But like, what were your observations about that during that time period? Right. It wasn't, all, it wasn't, it wasn't great all the time. There were some good moments. <laughs> Yeah, I had, a, I, I had a similar observation, I think. Like, I remember getting, I got like a flu when I was on the road with you guys and had a fever. I don't, I think Richie took me to like an Instacare and we had to go get yeah. products or something. Yep, and exactly. that same day we played, we were in South Dakota Mm-hmm. And that was a that was a famine show, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Richie was like having an, having issues singing, like he had a sore throat. We were playing some weird, like if I remember it being like some buckaroo weird, bar or something. It was like a skate rink or something weird. And yeah. you know, it's one of those shows where the crowd is on the same level as you, and they're standing right in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I was selling T-shirts like right to the side of where you guys were playing. Yeah. And I was like, I, I, really yeah. I remember sounding uncannily like harvey fire scheme at, <laughs> for that show um which you know that wouldn't be in, in some contexts and, and and with some songs that, that works but yeah not for a whole set there were many many great shows that were packed with people i'm even you know thinking of places like i think we played cleveland on some of those tours too yeah um, boston the middle yeah. east was like a crazy show in the basement hot and sweaty and everybody was like crammed in there it was so great yeah we played austin yeah austin was surprisingly was good at e- playing emos back emos was a classic yeah that's right yeah it's just strange because it was really like we never really knew what we were going to get into it would have been nice to be like okay we know what we're going to get but it was like some some places in certain <laughs> cities in certain states were like how are we doing this well here and other places were like there's like this is terrifying like how are we going to cro- like connect to this but, I, uh, I, think it's, I, I love it though i especially yeah. in hindsight i love that i love that it was always just this journey into the unknown and um you know i wouldn't trade With any no of money. it <laughs> yeah it was just, journey into the unknown yeah. do you remember showing up for a show in um 
Kansas City. It was kind of pissing down rain that day. And I have pictures of us like I was, re, we, this is nerdy. Richie, you and I would do these poetry games in the van where yeah. we would write pieces of poems and pass the book back and forth. Absolutely. And I have a picture where I'm on a cart, like a push cart, and you're pushing me around. And I think I was reading the poems out loud and everybody like, <laughs> <and> drew. <laughs> That's so right. At some point, we waited for hours for like the promoter to get to the show and the basement of the club had uh there was a sewage backup do you remember this oh yeah God. i do and at some point we all huddled and we were like should yeah. we leave <laughs> yeah we're like yes it was, let's who's leave. gonna call stormy <laughs> yeah who's <laughs> calling stormy <laughs> oh, that man. is the question oh god oh, i yeah. you know i remember some pretty uh euphoric salt lake city shows too yeah um, yeah yeah like where it was just that thing happens you know, you know that thing where it's like, you know, it's 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 sort of elusive and rare, but you know, in I think everyone who's ever played knows. But where it really, it just everything clicks, and the you and and everyone in the building is just you know kind of this. We're just warm, all cells and warm and wet together. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just it, you know what I mean. It's just it's that that like that euphoria and that kind of just, um, yeah. It just so I, I remember at least one or two of the Salt Lake City shows feeling like that. Yeah. yeah, most of them actually. I remember Stormy Shepard, our booking agent, was from there. Like our whole posse, Jeremy, and uh, she she did such a good job for us. It was, it, I mean, she kept us on the road uh, so much of the year, and was you know we'd go to Salt Lake, and it would be uh, it would be a, the best point in the tour because we'd stay at the house. Like Richie would make a bunch of food, and we we knew the show was going to be good, and we'd get some fucking rest for a couple of days because mm -hmm. we'd be doing shows almost like every day for like you know two months on a tour. Um, so that was always that was always a good spot for sure. I think the music also lent itself like there's a sensitivity to into another, um, you know, which is why I say I think it's probably like a like a sort of bad blanket statement to say that it's emo. But there's a sensitivity to it that that lends itself um, to this room full of people when it all when everybody comes together. They're singing one of these lyrics, Rich, that's just like that you've written that is like from from deep inside. And it's a very ex extremely personal. Right. And like the music is just like rocking. And like I think there were many moments on those tours that I felt that were like that. I was like, oh, these this crowd understands this. They get it. It's like it was you guys are an interesting band. And I mean that in the best in the best way. I'm not that's not a backhanded compliment oh, I think no of course interesting band and I think you were a lot more brave with your musical choices than a lot of your um peers and that could have been why people around you got signed and snatched up so quickly because they weren't taking they weren't taking these chances that you guys were taking and I don't even know you know from listening to you today I don't know if the chances you were taking were like something that you thought deeply about beforehand or if that's just what poured out of your soul into your music, you know? So, yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Th thanks, sir. That's, that's yeah. really, uh, really yeah. touches me uh, and, and moves me to hear you say that it's, yeah. So, I mean, sure. We, we, we definitely knew that we, I, I, I think the, the risks we took creatively were just, I think sort of at the, at the outset, 
the you know genesis of into another i think we abandoned um just any sort of pursuit of you know conforming to a genre or a scene or 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 really anything and so so in that regard it is what poured out of us because we i think we embarked on this thing i i think it's it's just something that that is a result of just the just the, the general kind of like thesis and <laughs> mission statement of into another where we 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 uh the the risk came because we kind of abandoned uh giving ourselves constraints creatively but to me as a fan you know it it pays off in dividends like i mentioned earlier one of my favorite bands of all time is shudder to think and you guys i kind of have you guys in that sort of like you know that kind of vibe where it's like they they also were very hard to pin down but the great thing is is that all these years later you're listening to these records that you've listened to for 25 years and i'm still hearing new things all the time and new things where i go oh wow this you know this actually reminds me of you know like there was parts on here on ignorus where today i was like oh wow this reminds me of like later bad brains you know some of the like the the chunky riffs and and the groove and stuff where maybe if it wasn't, there wasn't all these risks and all these um, experimenting where, you know, there's not really much else to find. That doesn't mean it's not an amazing record. There's a lot of records that I like that, you know, I'm not necessarily hearing something new every time. Well, with the benefit of, of, of hindsight, looking back at some of the, like, you know, what was to come, uh, there's a side of me, I was thinking about this record and, and like Richie was saying about, you know, just being able to, take chances and and not really, you know, abandoning, abandoning the thought of like, we're going to try to be conservative with a lot of this. I, I wish that, you know, in a way that we hadn't, you know, decided to like, okay, well, now we're going to go the route of getting signed. I think it would have been really interesting for, for seamless and, you know, for our career, if we hadn't been, you know, embraced by a major label. I think that once that the die was cast with that, we went from feeling like the freedom of, of being able to do those things to being much more confined and placed in a box. And how are we going to stay true to like what we, who we are is into another, and then be able to put that in a box with selling it on a, on a major platform. And I think that was one of the, the flaws with that, with that, you know, um, with signing to a, to a major for a band like us, it was, it was a really difficult transition that didn't really go that well, honestly. And we'll we'll talk about seamless, uh, hopefully, because Can't wait. it is on Rev. The vinyl's on Rev, so we yeah. get to do that. That's right. That's yeah. right. I, you know, spoiler alert, the three of us love that record. Um, but I wanted to ask before we wrap up with hot tracks, you talked a lot about touring. Who were some of like your kindred spirits on the road that you were maybe either tour mates or just bands you run into, like around this Ignorus era? Um, Jeremy Chatelain. <laughs> <laughs> seriously i mean uh of 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 all the uh the of the the characters in our in in our inner sanctum which he was but also of just who who were basically members of into another but just weren't you know playing an instrument on stage during the set um yeah he to me is the most beloved uh human being of, of, uh, of the, of all of our touring years and, and recording years. 
for sure. That's really sweet. Thank you. I mean it. And I yeah. and I love your brother. I love I love uh I love les deux. I love both chatelains very much. Chicken chowder. Um, shot a shot uh I already can't say tough. Help me out here. Chatelain. 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 Well, yeah. but but i meant like as far as band i, I, I also meant, uh other bands other bands um, that like you were uh either touring with at this time or maybe played some shows with um god man it feels yeah i mean well, well you know what i mean like because because at the time we were doing shows with iceburn i feel like that was just like the trippiest most like visceral time of into another for me yeah. too like emotionally yeah. i feel like iceburn's Iceburn's one in there. We played a lot. We played a lot of shows with Shift as well. We did some, you know. I remember For sure, playing. Shift. Um, yeah. I mean, God, the so thing many. was, we we were a band that would do most of our own headlining shows. Um, uh, it wasn't until you know we got when we got the Hollywood thing and we started, which was again, I think, a mistake because our audience want, would come to see a lot of the stuff that we were doing. Um, and so we didn't work well, I think with a lot of headlining bands, we never really made that, that connection with a lot of like, with like a headliner per se. I mean, we did show some shows, the orange nine millimeter with quicksand. We did one with, uh, rage against the machine, you know, one of that, like we do sporadic shows, but most of the shows we do were, uh, were, were headlining shows for people for ourselves really. Cause that's, it was hard to place that music with a lot of different bands at the time. Yeah, no, I can, I can definitely see that. Like ice burn is a cool, uh, to me, that's like a cool combination for sure. Uh, you guys, like, you know, I've made no secret this, the, the pot doing the podcast and approaching a lot of this stuff with like a, I don't know, scholastic ear. Like I've grown to love ice burn. Like it was not yeah. something that I was really like, it didn't, grabbed me as a kid and i just think the combat i'm thinking about around this time was like hephaestus was like the ice burn album that came out on rev and yeah. like i think this and that it's a nice you don't sound anything alike but it just it works really well yeah. it's a really you, you know what so, some some odd pairings i remember like that i i loved doing the like wetland shows with uh rain like the sound of trains my oh, friend yeah. Yeah. beats band um and and the shows we did with a veil um, right. yeah. there are these like really cool pairings of bands that couldn't be more yep. different I, to one another, yeah. but, uh, yeah. Playing with them. I forgot <laughs> about rains like this rain, like the sound of trains, uh, connection. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge soul side fan to yeah. so Bobby. The show here um, around that time, if I remember correctly in 94 was at the ice house with far side trigger man yeah. and right. paradox, which would be, yeah. In which would then more paradox would turn into 1134, which you right. have a connection with. So that was yeah. kind of the musical, yeah, pairings around here. 108, 108 was another one for sure. Nice. Sure, love them. Yeah, we did a couple of shows with Texas as a reason too. I remember it, yeah. it, it, New Haven, um, some other maybe some other East Coast stuff with them at the time, and they were starting we did some out. shows. Some shows with Shelter on the road. Yeah, Shelter, right? That are playing with them great. in Kentucky, Louisville. Yeah. Um, it was an exciting time. You know, we've talked about it before. With um, you know, especially I remember when we spoke with uh, like Orange Nine Millimeter guys. Mm -hmm. I, I think it was like the '90s as not only 
as a fan was exciting just because there's all these new like sounds, at least to, to me. Um, but also just being in the bands, it was an exciting time because, um, you know, that like you said, there was all your friends, you know, friends are getting signed and able to actually make, you know, try to make a living doing something, which now like as an adult, I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't I want these bands that I love to be able to just do, um, you know, do their band and not have to worry about, yeah. uh, you know, going to a day yeah. job and then rehearsing, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like it was just a cool time for music. Well, there was no way that you could do be on an indie label and play for like 10 months out of the year without eventually trying to get some funding. And I think that, you know, that was the thing about, we're like, wow, we can, now we can play, you know, now we can play and be busy all the time. Yeah. I mean, but it's weird. I mean, I never, sure. There've been plenty of bands who, who, who never uh, signed to a major who actually did really well for themselves and were able to, you know, sustain themselves financially. So I don't know that, that stuff never mattered that much to me other than that, you know, I, 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 for me, it was always more about, um, you know, we're, we're pouring our hearts and souls into this thing and we just, we don't fit anywhere. It seems, it seems like for some reason, everyone has everything. So, uh, has such a filing system and, and everything's so categorized and, and, uh, and radio formats and genres and labels and scenes and fans. So, so that stuff always frustrated me just feeling like we were this, just this, fringe outlier kind of weird thing that uh couldn't be categorized <laughs> that that frustrated me more whether or not we were able to find our uh you know whether we were able to remain sort of gainfully employed as indie artists or major label artists really didn't make a difference it was it was more that to 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 get to be able to do that you kind of have to, uh, to some degree, you have to fit into all of these, uh, into this filing system. Right. No, I, yeah. And I, we, we didn't even really understand what was so weird about us, you know, to us, it made sense what we were doing. <laughs> so we didn't understand why it was such, such a thing to get for people, you know? Yeah. Which is a great point. Like if yeah. you think about it, it's like, sure, it's, it's, but it's not like, it's like, um, you know, I'm trying to think of something that's just way out there that someone would have to really. Was it the Mahubishi Orchestra? Yeah. <laughs> See, now we get to, they're going to be the new thing that's, that's mentioned. They're mentioned yeah. like in the uh, uh, Ice Burning Engine Kid. We were talking about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it that. wasn't that, you know. It yeah. That like, that's the thing. It's it's still like rock music, you mm-hmm. know, like to me. Like, and I don't yeah, mean it didn't, that didn't as an insult. That, that just, wildly experimental or anything. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. like we were trying to do atonal you know <laughs> bell music or something i don't know you know yeah, it's a- hot hot funk cool punk even if it's old junk it's still rock and roll to me <laughs> exactly so i think that's sorry that's, that's the worst place. fucking we were, song ever <laughs> we were coming at it from a billy joel perspective really <laughs> fucking yeah, worst song right. ever i love it when people use the lyric junk in songs i'll listen um, i'll listen to i'll listen to vienna all day that's a fucking jam Vienna's a great song but it's still it's still rock and roll to me is fucking god awful it's it's, it's it gets radio play though you know Sorry. yeah um <laughs> yeah. 
What do you think you dance to? What do you think it's time to do right now? I think it's time to kick a hot track, and I think we're gonna start hot with tracks. our new. I know. I wish I had like a sound bite that we could put in right here. Hot yeah. tracks. Maybe we'll have you guys. Be the order first one, one, man. Next time you, you should have two in post. In post. Um, I think you should get you should get Gaffigan to do it. All uh, hot pockets. <laughs> oh yeah. I think that would be uh, that would be a coup if you could pull that off. That would be a serious. Just what I could do. You got to have an in. This yeah. is crazy. Jeremy, we're gonna start with you. Please tell us your hot track from Into Another. Ignore us. Um, I was talking about this on the Insight um, episode, uh, but um, and it's a song that I asked these guys to play many times and they would not they would not play it (laughs) uh laughing at oblivion is my hot track i love the way it comes in i mean i think it's fucking when he sings rainbow you know like it's just like yeah it's awesome that's my hot track laughing at oblivion to me could be swapped in order with maritime murder so that it could start side b like just right with those chugs just go right into it oh, it's so interesting the way it comes in jin, jin, jin. yeah for sure kicks it oh. yeah uh peter has already spoiled his hot track but why don't you <laughs> tell us again i'm gonna have to listen back to the podcast to hear what jeremy said because i was i was walking oh, and I, I lost his his comments but I, i'm going to check that out <laughs> yeah you know what uh two snowflakes uh um, you know, since we've been playing recently, sometimes people will come up to us and, and they'll be like, can you play two snowflakes? And it's like really meaningful to, you know, usually couples, of course, they they have like this, this deep connection. So I feel like, I don't know, that, that it really, ha- it makes me very happy when we've done something that people really bring into their lives and it, it really, uh, you know, uh, brings them meaning and warmth and and comfort you know uh that excites me and that song seems to excite people in that way so uh that's pre- that, and it i don't know it came out nicely too cool. <laughs> recording um but, richie oh, richie is, is now a good time about that is now a good time to tell us all about this theory that you have <laughs> so I'll, I'll 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 tell you about it someday um, okay Good. So, yeah, uh, it was that a segue into my my. Hot yes. Track. Yeah. Now tell us your um, hot track. So, I mean, fuck, I'm so bad at this because it's there's there's like a tie. I mean, there's really kind of a three way tie, but because I always base it on for me, there are there are into another songs that still make me cry a little bit. So mm-hmm. that's 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 my barometer is the the tear test. It's really hard to pick one. So I, I, maybe I'll, I'll go through the process of elimination of, and start with three and whittle it down to one. Can yeah, I kick do that? it. Yes. Yeah, please. Okay, so, so, so the songs that still really resonate with me, because they're probably like unresolved emotional issues I have uh, with, with the things that, that, that sort of gave birth to these lyrics. Um, so for me, it's, it's laughing at oblivion and anxious and William. Um, and I think probably, so those three songs still move me greatly, whether I'm, you know, just like singing along to them in my car or like just playing them in my head um, or, or playing them live when, you know, when we do that every once in a blue moon. I, I think probably 
the at, at the end of the day the song sort of just means the most to me even though there are songs that i rock out to more and like you know make i i bang my head to more and and maybe like i you know it's this is so fucking hard um i think probably at the end of the day uh it's anxious um only because uh i feel like like it's a lot of that song is like uh is like seven-year-old me <laughs> um you know saying things it does have a very childlike quality and, and not in a, a bad way um you know very like what if i had animal parts on me yeah. like that's a really not really having a full uh scope of what your body can do you know mentality of it and how kids like draw themselves maybe with you know as anamorphic or whatever um there was that but there was also you know imagine if i could escape from all this really fucking horrible shit that's happening to me Mm. so there was a lot of that too and um and and also the fact that even you know even at at that age and and so true i i you know i I, I didn't I didn't sleep much and 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 I was feeling a lot of things very very deeply but but still for me and, and just the way that that song comes together and really the 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 crescendo of Tony's bass playing and that that's when when we get to that place emotionally for me it's still you know I feel it very very you know, I feel it in my like gristle and sinew and in my bone marrow you know yeah that bass part. Well, that's my hot track also, but that bass part towards the end, like before the last chorus of Tony, and it's so like soaring. And then that's where Drew drops in that slow roll. And then you come in repeating the same words, but now with like an, like an intensity that's not found on the whole rest of the song. Your vocal performance on that song is so delicate you know with like the falsettos where it's almost almost below the rest of the music and like very very soft singing and then the end like what a good way to almost end the the album and then to come back in and you you know you kind of there it fades out with the music and the vocals it's my second favorite into another song in the entire catalog. I'm not going to spoil what the number one is, but that is like, sometimes I'll just, I can't <laughs> wait to get to the last two songs on this record. Right. With like You're anxious drowning into anxious. Yes. It's like, I'm anxious to get to anxious. Uh, I'm those two songs to me are like the perfect way to end any any album it's a fucking great one-two punch and as you can tell i've never thought about this before this is just completely (laughs) off the fly i've never dissected this song in my head before at all right and studied it so throw away the note cards yeah now i could get rid of all that i'm glad i saved that space in my head now so greg man patriot let's this well first off should we give jason's hot track yeah yeah kick it jason uh you know who like i said couldn't could not be here today he's bummed uh his hot track is two snowflakes as well so for me 
it's tough because I feel like every time I listen, I'd be like, okay, no, this is going to be my, my pick. But I feel like the one that I always go back to is also two snowflakes. Um, I just think it's such a beautiful song. The lyrics are, are amazing. Um, you know, if, if God is water, you and I are two snowflakes well, he won't tell us what it means. Yeah, yet. but we'll have to do just, a special. You really want me to ruin your two? No, actually don't. I actually don't. to me. And and I love I love the you know I've written page upon page about so many things. Yeah, but more often than not, I'll burn what I've written, afraid to know. Yeah. Um. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this one and just musically, the you know that it's, and it's funny because it's one of the, it's one of the more mellow tracks you know uh-huh. it's a lot of acoustic guitar um and yet the whole band still shines on it you know so the uh the classical acoustic guitar solo in that this song is amazing to me like i have a friend an older friend who plays classical guitar and every time i hear any bits of classical guitar into songs it's like always really caught my ear and i i love this uh that guitar part peter thank you it was very nerve-wracking <laughs> recording that because uh recording acoustic guitars in general is is very touchy every little every little thing can can end up sounding bad <laughs> yeah and did then, you- of course we had uh ray martin uh you know carefully watching like a hawk making sure nothing bad got on his tape so uh uh, yeah, it was it, it was a challenge. I'm not a particularly strong acoustic guitar player, and uh, and I wasn't back then either. So it was uh, it was hard work. But did uh, you use uh, nylon strings or steel strings on that song? No, it's all steel string. Okay. It's, it's all steel string. It has that. There's it a, has that soft quality to it at times that I that uh, made me think it was nylon. Yeah, I kind of play that way from from playing classical guitar. So the way I use my hand makes it kind of sound like that. So mm. it, it makes sense that you would hear that. Nice. Um, yeah, um, you know, it was an improvised solo. I mean, I had some vague idea, but um, you know, just kind of uh, it, it came it came out nice, and we were like, okay, good. <laughs> like improvised in the studio. Uh what the yep. fuck that is so gnarly dude <laughs> wow it's, that, it's, just, like, it's a beautiful it's just a beautiful piece of music like yes. it's yeah. the whole i mean the whole album but really i mean that song is we tried to make it very very legit and nice yeah yeah it, it uh you know we came pretty close <laughs> i mean i could always go back and pick on 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 things but uh yeah <laughs> it is legit and nice <laughs> I, I don't remember that uh, discussion. Yeah, and let's face it, it's a br- it's a brilliant track to shag to. It's just, it's just, that's, I mean, you know, it's a, I don't that's mean, a mixtape song. Laughing at oblivion, a little harder to harder to work with, but you know, <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. Well, that leaves us with. But I, I do love that song. Laughing at Oblivion's yeah. probably and and uh, um, ungodly. Those are those are the the, the crushers. Ungodly <laughs> was the was the one that got me today. Where I was when I was sitting and reading the lyrics, it really and the guitar's a little out of tune, but it kind of sounds like a Leslie. It's got that kind of creepy like. <laughs> <laughs> 
cartoony effect on the choruses, which, uh, which um, I'm happy about. <laughs> All right. Richie, I, I find that song very emotional too. I mean, it, it, we didn't know what Richie was going to sing when, when, you know, when, uh, as we were saying before, when we, mm. when we put the piece together. Um, so we already were, had like an intensity to it. Right. And then, and then that, know, that took it then, to, that's what I was going to ask. Actually, yeah. And then he, he, uh, he like, put an extra, extra twist on there that, yeah. <laughs> Drew, you're in the hot seat. Once yeah, again. I mean it's it's interesting to me because I thought I was going to be like the outlier, and I'm uh, I'm running with the cool crowd. So I um, <laughs> I feel like uh, my go-to when I listen to the records uh, at the time, and, and still more than anything, is probably "Laughing at Oblivion," which I think is ironic considering it was our least played song off that record. But uh, emotionally speaking, like uh, it's a re- it's a song I think that throughout the course of my life since I record, um, it, it has like. I think it's the most profound in terms of dealing with loss at points in my life and uh, summarizing that. And as a, as a, as a, as a medium to convey that feeling, I think that that song, it just affects me every time there are moments that, you know, I've had in the last, like whatever it is, 25 years uh, where I've listened to that. And it's just like reduced me to a, to a shell. Um, So for that effect, and just for like, you know, um, just the odd musical choices of it. I love laughing at oblivion. Albeit, you know, it's it was impossible to play live. I think and try to get it across the same way, um, even though it was it's still a minimal song in terms of just having drums, bass, guitar, and vocal. And then I like I really like William in terms of its theatricality. Uh, I, I think that's probably an, it, it lends itself to like being a, a point in our set that it always seems to, you know, have like a moment of just quiet and and theater. For that song and and i it's also something that i'm incredibly fond of because me and rich discovered that uh william hope hodgson writing around this, at the same time together he brought home a book from a from a, a specialized book dealer and and it you know i was blown away by his writing so i'm i'm very close to that song as well and the so for laughing in oblivion i'm going to say that jeremy your request for it all those years ago is what what burrowed in our head and, and made it become the hot track <laughs> It's interesting it to hear. We, it's interesting to hear that because uh, I thought I was going to be an outlier with that song. Yeah, it always struck a chord with me. Uh, the lyrics did. Yeah, um, you know, I'll die <laughs> and death will become a rain. A lot of weird chords in there. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. I, I never, you know, I was always like, "Can you guys play that song tonight?" No, it's we weird, Jeremy, because <laughs> that 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 line is always what just shatters me every time I listen to that song or sing along well, with yeah. it. Yeah, line was it again? Sorry, I didn't I didn't catch just a. In, in death, I'll be your rainbow. Uh, that the, the 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 that song's really fraught and really heavy, and and yeah. it's, it's full of a lot of stuff that still reduces me to tears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it is. That is like the moment of like uh, ultimate catharsis. That rainbow moment where you're like, yeah. okay, I say both. Oh, I'll die and be a rainbow. Sort of transmogrified and, you know, to like the soul, you know, if you will, in in sort of occult terms. It's it's interesting. <laughs> so. Um, there was one more question from Jason to wrap it up. Last question. How long after you dropped the album, did you see the first tattoo of the cover art? <laughs> 12 minutes. <laughs> I, I think uh, it was a number of years. I think Jordan sent me a picture of someone with a, I, I I have no idea. Maybe maybe like nobody was, showed it on the like. Yeah, I thought actually, I think it was pretty pretty soon actually. 
Uh, I think no, I, I honestly don't remember. I think it didn't I take that long. I, I think remember. there were tattoos on the road. I think people came to the merch booth and were, hey, check this out. Right. right okay. Right. Yeah, I think so. That's, That's cool. awesome. You're making me want to play, man. I want to go back uh, soon and, 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 and do some into another stuff. Yes. We want that too. Trust me. Thanks guys. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Once again, we have two more, three more chances to talk to you. Um, You know, if you want to do a poison fingers, seven inch, because that is a standalone record. That's a catalog number, man. Catalog number. Drew is the youngest guy in the band, so he'll definitely be around for the next. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you had to just finish in middle school, it would be like my twenty. Represent, kid. Represent. Yeah, there we go. Uh, We also we just finished recording an album that's going to come out uh, second week of March, right? Um, Which will then be followed by a two-song. Seven-inch benefit for uh, Peter and Earth Save. This is one of the new songs on uh, on the album. It's laughing at oblivion. this outro yeah um man what a huge album for all of us and i don't just mean the three of us talking right now i mean there are some really really dedicated and loving into another fans out there and i would venture to say that this is most people's favorite into another record um you know, because it's like you can sit down, like you said, and listen to this as an album. Of course, it's got the standout singles, you know, Running Into Walls, Poison Fingers, Two Snowflakes. Like it starts out really strong, but like it, it's just such an amazing record. And it's for me, it was something that I didn't get right away. And I think a lot of that had to do with the vocals and the weirdness of it. And like I said in the interview, coming at it from uh, only hearing like maybe basic hardcore or like weirdo hardcore before this, I wasn't quite ready, but it only took me literally like one or two listens. And I had a group of friends and they were talking about lying in the um, front yard of our suburban home because we grew up in the suburbs. And I just thought that was so like funny and poignant at the time. And so I was like, okay, my friends love this record. It's on revelation. Let's, let's, let's give it a shot. And it's just became like one of my favorite records 
of all time? Yeah, I, I, can I talk? Is that all right? Yes, please. Yeah, please. Um, I think that I was ready. I think I was ready for it when it, when I heard it, I got a tape once again, like it was sort of like when Richie sent me the underdog demo early on, he sent me a cassette of Ignoris. And at the time I was a delivery driver in this van around here and I would deliver clothing to these clothing stores. And I worked at their like central warehouse. And that thing was like in the cassette deck of the van and I was just like, the minute the bass riff came in, you know, I was just like, oh my God, this is such a good record. And I was singing the songs and like, you know, and then when, when they, when I asked them about going on tour with them and they said, yes, I was just over the moon. Cause I was like, oh, I get to go travel and I get to go travel with this band that I really like. And obviously I'm going to like, you know, sort of pick up a thing or two here or there watching them every night. And that, that was really fun. It was an interesting time for sure. And I think that like, I think that those who got that band really got it and embraced it. And then there were those who were like, I don't understand. And it's interesting to hear Peter say, I don't, were we weird? I don't know, were we weird? I think, I don't, I would not describe them as weird, but I would describe them as um, different to the scene that was around them and the records that were being put out at the time. There was a lot more the music was pretty in depth and there was a, there was a, there was a whole other thing going on uh, with them, which I thought was, a, which I thought was the appeal. So, yeah. I love the idea, like, and we talked about it in the other into another ones too, that like you had this band and even though they like look different, cause you had Richie and Drew which all us hardcore kids knew, you know, Richie from Underdog, Drew from Bold, Nutha Today. And then you have these two guys that are not from hardcore, long hair guys. And somehow though, they look like a unit when they're in the pictures and you see them in that, you know, like you said, the, the, the shot of them in bed, but even just promo pictures, it worked somehow. Like you, and you had like, yeah, Richie and Drew kind of went for the, um, you know, almost like mod. I, I don't know how to to describe it, but like yeah, it was like especially Drew around this time. You know, kind of like straight across bangs and um, very like Mancunian. You know, striped yes. shirts, oh, yeah. but then also throwing in some like you know in the video for Poison Fingers, he's got that like studded choker on. Yeah, and it, it was very uh, it was very English looking. Yeah, which yes. I know, you know, yeah. Richie is into all that stuff and Drew and uh, I can't speak, you know, for Tony and Peter, what, what like their influences were. But it just, it took, you know, I can't state enough how well this band and specifically this record managed to take so many different types of music and style and make it this cohesive thing. And I'm with Peter, like, it's really not that weird. Like this isn't even the weirdest record on Rev. Yeah. Like we, we just, yeah. we just did an episode on the Iceburn engine kid split. Yeah. This isn't weirder than that. No, not at all. You know what I mean? Like, like this isn't like, it's I mean, a that's rock record. Yeah. Like that, like that splits like in basically instrumental, you know, jazz, wild, like wild stuff, which, 
great record. You know, we, we talked about that. Um, but to me, this is like much more straightforward. It's just, yeah, it's like a theatrical, but, but like, I think Richie kept bringing up, uh, he mentioned the theatrical, I think it was Richie or might've been Drew, but yeah, like it's, is it, is this any weirder than like Queen Night at the Opera? Yeah. Well, it's very, you know I mean? it is very, the whole thing is super rock and roll and New York to me. And yeah. after having lived in New York and I can only imagine those guys growing up there with some of that, like, you know, the CB scene and outside of hardcore, there was a lot of like rock and roll was like glamorous and dirty and kind of dangerous, um, which made it appealing to a lot of people. You know what I mean? And I think these guys were trying to get back to some of the roots of that too, as well yeah. as striking this like sensitive, chord with people but i also think that a lot of classic rock does that too it feels it feels dark and dangerous and also like whoa this guy's telling me about his feelings right now yeah Yeah. but like when you mentioned the emo thing like i always thought that the later sunny day real estate like rising tide oh yeah is indebted to into another um i wonder if they i wonder if there's any connection I wonder that too, like, cause you really can, I can hear it. And then also, you know, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, Coheed and Cambria. I know the um, band, but I haven't really listened to them. Ever. And I'm a fan, especially of like their earlier records and stuff that was on, uh, Equal Vision. But like, I remember first hearing them and just being, Oh, this is just, they're just like trying to do into another. You know, like, like when I put on this today, my wife, who's you know not into hardcore really, you know, she likes like bad brains, you know, and it was on and she was like, is this, this is like Coheed. And I, of course, had to be like, well, this is actually from, you know, I was like that meme of the guy yeah. at the, uh, you know, I was like, and then she was the one actually pointed out. She's like, oh my God, there's, that's a bad brains like type part. And you have this, all this stuff going on that makes it, the, the amazing record it is. Is this my favorite into another? I, I can't, it's hard for me to, to pick like when I think about favorite and best. So Hav, yeah. this is not your favorite into another, right? No, I don't think it is. I think, seamless? I think that Seamless is my favorite into another record. I um, think that when so, I hear Seamless, I think that Seamless, um, that's one where when I hear it, I don't know why it wasn't huge at that time. Like they could have held their own with, you know, I'm thinking of 1995, like Alice in Chains were still popular. They had the record mm-hmm. with the, uh, the three-legged dog, yeah. um, Soundgarden, Bad Motor, or not Bad Motor Finger, uh, Super Unknown, Stone Temple Pilots, um, you know, the heavier stuff. I don't know why they did not just explode with the seamless record well it is interesting i think uh, rick parashar also did that record who did pearl jam 10 and they recorded in seattle yeah um, i think that and you know they were talking about signing to a major and how you know in hindsight you kind of look back and think like was that the best move and I, my band did the same thing and i thought i think now like was that the best move but it it was really hard to resist it was really hard to resist the lure of a major label at the time after yeah. up, playing in bands, 
giving a shit about music, not just like, Hey, I play in a band cause I think it's cool, but like, Hey, I want to, I'm going to move to New York because I want to play in a band, you know? Um, it would have been really hard to resist. And I was around when Into Another started to get that attention. Lawyers shaking their hands and label people giving them cards. And it was the most odd thing coming from Salt Lake City hardcore shows, being dropped into this world with them and like, hey, set up the merch booth and let's do this. And then standing there watching the like weird, the weird like circus that started to swirl around like, Hey, this is the, this is a lawyer. Hey, this is like a person from Atlantic. Hey, this is a person, you know, and I was like, what is happening? And they, you know, you could tell they were going to get, they were going to get signed. I just don't think that they got signed as quickly as, as some of their peers, but um, yeah, who knows? Maybe had they just kept putting out records on, on an indie on Rev or something, it, it would have been a better deal. And, but I think it's the natural course of things for a band too. You try stuff out and whatever your band goes through ups and downs person personality wise and people leave and yeah. But, and you know, and stop and what's popular changes too. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm thinking like as much as I'm like, yeah, this should have been huge. I'm thinking, well, 1995 was also when like, it was more like about pop punk stuff. That's it. You know, like it was like more, a, it was yeah, like green day warp tour was starting. Yeah. So like maybe, even though they were doing this shit before all that, maybe it was like too late. I don't know. I don't know. You know, However, like, you know, is it that kind of like massive cultural shift in music? Does it only matter if you're on a major label and that major is trying to push you to the world, right? Because if you were on like, if Jets to Brazil, we were on Jade Tree and we sold a pretty significant amount of records for being on an indie, and we did just fine. And what was going on in the larger world didn't seem to hold sway over us at all. And I think like maybe head into another, you know, it's true. Had they just stayed on Rev and they weren't trying to like, because I remember them going on tour with like White Zombie and my brother went on tour with Into Another for a while too. And I think they played shows with like Supergrass and mm -hmm. I love Supergrass, but what a strange yeah. combination. Yeah. Um, they didn't have into another didn't have any peers that sounded like them. No. Yeah. Which is uh, what I was saying. Like, like they, cause even the stuff like quicksand, like quicksand playing with orange nine millimeter playing with, you know, helmets playing with like all that stuff kind of makes sense. And I, I love all those bands, you know, I love quicksands. One of my favorite bands, uh, you know, all of them, I, they're great, but into another definitely doesn't sound like that stuff. Nope. And, and, you know, it's, it's like they, like, I think it might've been Richie that said like, you know, they get lumped into what they get lumped into because of the label they were on, you know, Rev and the bands they were in. And, you know, for again, not to beat a dead horse, like to bring up shudder to think it was kind of like the same thing. Like they were like lumped into, Oh, uh, they're from DC. So, and they're on discord. But like, they also didn't really have any peers, which can be cool, but it can also not, you know, they, they kind of had a similar trajectory as into another where, you know, they left yeah, Discord. Who do they play with? What, what yeah. bill makes sense? And like, who, who is your audience if you are alone? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not easy for like a marketing person at a label to be like, let's see 
into another, um, they sound like, cause they don't, you know, maybe if they were like a third, if they were like this, like third wave grunge thing or whatever, and they started, they sounded like Creed or whatever, they could say, oh, we can send them out with all these bands and they can play shows with these bands. And that's the crowd we're going for. We can advertise in the magazines that these people listen to, but into another is a, is a really unique. I don't like to throw that word around too much, but a unique sounding band, um, which in a way I think is totally punk rock. Uh, and they are, it's, they're too hard for a, a major. I think it's too hard. It was too hard for a major to know what to do with them. Yeah, it's like Epic it's almost didn't know what to do with Handsome. They had no idea what to do with us. They were like, "Let's see, who do we put you out with?" You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Handsome toured with like Descendants, right? And yeah, which was weird. Their crowd fucking hated us. You know? I can only imagine into another going out, into another one out with White Zombie. You know what would that have been like? If you well, know? did you did you watch? There was recently. I was I was gonna. Well, I'll talk to them about it when we do Seamless because I was gonna ask you about White Zombie because just recently. Um, I saw a video someone put together about um, with Buzz Osborne from the Melvins talking about touring with White Zombie. And he says to this day, it, it was like the worst touring experience he's ever had in, in his life. Um, he just said like the crew was terrible. Like they couldn't do sound checks because Rob Zombie was eating lunch. Yeah. And he was like, what does us doing a sound check? What did he say? I think he said, what is he eating? A Fabergé egg? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, well, he's like, we can't sound check, but like, yeah, I do wonder like what, what that was like. They toured with, wasn't it white zombie and the Ramones, right? It was oh, like, it, yeah, I don't know. it was like into another white zombie and the Ramones, at least it maybe in Philly. It was, I, I yeah. didn't I go, but yeah, we had some, I had some humiliating experiences like that where, you know, other people were making decisions and booking shows according to what they thought was going to be good for your marketing plan. And, you know, there's nothing like walking out, walking out on stage. And I fucking love the descendants, right? Love them since I was a kid. Nothing like walking out on stage and saying, Hey, we're handsome and having the fucking crowd sit on the floor. Blunk. All of them sit down at once. I was like, crazy. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, that's a bummer. And like, yeah, because that was the Caffeine Caffeine Nation tour, right? It was like, uh-huh. you guys, wasn't it Weston who's from here? Yeah, like it's just yeah, a weird uh, combo. Yeah, it was weird. And then you, well, you also, you, Handsome did stuff with a uh, Silver Chair, right? Yeah, those were actually good shows, though. Yeah, I guess I would. That makes makes you know more sense. Plus, was I wasn't there the Australian connection with uh, Peter, right? Yeah. Um, they were on the same label we were, but you know, those are, the, those are the things like, those are the things that determine your career. Hi kitty on a major label. Unfortunately, it's not, I'm reading this book about the Smiths right now and which it's, one? it's fantastic. And which book, uh, life it? never goes out. It's like yeah. a biography great, and yep, great talks about Jeff Travis, the guy who owns rough trade, rough trade was a distribution company and didn't really put records out and decided to take a chance and sign the Smiths. Cause they saw all these other labels that were perhaps going to swoop them up factory or whatever was going on at the time mute. And, um, 
basically he was the, he was their guy, you know, like he made decisions based on what the band wanted to do. And it was an indie label and they blew up while they were on that label. And I don't know, everybody's experiences are so different, but I think that that early nineties feeding frenzy of, um, major labels swooping in and handsome got signed orange nine got signed into another got signed quicksand got signed like all those bands in New York got signed it would have been really hard to say no thanks we don't want to we don't want to sign the contract you know what I mean don't take to the top of the Sony building and have us sign this contract and give us a sushi dinner um yeah like not everybody I always said like not everybody's Fugazi like not not everybody they did it on their own terms and they still and I think they were just fine with it but um I don't know we you know yeah I don't know it's interesting it's interesting into another we're like they are a unique they're a unique uh unit I think that you can't really they can't be I don't think they can be pigeonholed and I think the the personalities in the band were also like disparate from each other also, which added to the, um, who they were as like a musical unit. And, but man, when it clicked and you had a room full of people who were singing along, I was thinking about that part in drowning. That's and the whole, you know, you could just see the whole room going, wow, wow. Like up and down to it. I was like, yes, this is like, you know, you're feeling it right there. And it was like, boys and girls all all in there like and it was dancing you know it wasn't like uh people punching and doing windmill right. shit it was like oh this is into another it's cool we're yeah like, i remember a friend telling me they uh back in the 90s when he would see him that like into another had some of the craziest pits i i 100 saw a girl get punched in the face in the pit at an into another gig like oh, like actual moshing, you know what I mean? It was wild. On person or on purpose or on yes. accident? Yes, on purpose. Jeez, where I was that at? I won't expand on that, but because uh, I don't want to uh, incriminate anybody. But it was here in Orange County, California. Oh, geez. Yeah, but I'm um, you know also saw some really amazing uh, into another shows here. Like every time I saw them, it was never like, eh, they weren't really that good tonight. It was like seeing them in 1994 and then seeing them in what year was Rev Fest? 2012. 20, no, the other, the next one, Rev 2017. Yeah. Rev, Rev 30. Every time I've seen them, it's amazing. And anywhere, like it's always so good. There was a gig here a few years ago that was ju- like into another in glass jaw. Yeah. Like lost my fucking mind. Like that is that's like your dream show. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, like just so happy to be able to see both of those bands together. And um man, like incredible energy, like Richie's pipes still got it. You know, you hear some singers over time, like not to disparage any other like aging hardcore people, but there's some people that their voice just doesn't sound the same and it doesn't really sound that good to my ear holes, but uh, into another, they could, I could have tickets to go see them next weekend. And I would know that I'm going to get a good, a good performance. They did the reunion uh, record, right? Too. But it's a tough sell to be a band that hasn't put out anything. And 
Uh, at that point, it had been 20 years since they officially put out anything. You know, Seamless was 95. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's like they didn't lose a step. Like, it just sounds like the next thing that they should have done after Seamless. Um, yeah. Because sometimes, you know, bands get back together. It's 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 tough. It's 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 you know, um, and they they did it they did it right, and um, God, I, I would I would love to see them play. Isn't it interesting thinking about like uh, thinking about the prospect of like getting back getting your band back together to make music, but from a listener's point of view, like the three of us being music fans, listeners, and also like you know what it's like to be in a band. And I heard lots of disparaging comments about my bands over the years. And I just wanted to shake people and be like, you don't know what the fuck goes on in the room when we're together. You know what I mean? That's, like, that's what I try to say. People your automatically- first record is awesome. And by the time you got to your third record, what happened? And I felt like going, I'll tell you what happened. We got so much better. <laughs> like that, that record like blew the first one out of the water and you just mm-hmm. don't, you don't get it because you're stuck in time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But then also I'm like, as a listener, and I've followed, you know, I've followed artists and and things like that through careers. And I'll just say something like, I used to be really into this dude, Ron Sexsmith. He's like a singer-songwriter from Canada. Um, he's real, real normal, just a good singer-songwriter. And he's put out lots of records. And at some point, he lost me, you know what I mean? And I was that listener that was like, what happened? He did, I don't know, either he changed or he just kept doing the same thing. And I was like, okay, I'm over it. You know what I mean? It's like sort of the new, God, I could even say like the new Wilco record, the last Wilco record that came out. I was like, and I used to be a Uber fan when they- Yeah, uh, that's a good example. Like there's, there's certain bands where it, they lost me, but then I think like, like like because wilco i loved like yankee hotel and uh being there and um summer teeth and then you think is it like it sometimes i want to be like well it's not you it's me you know what i mean like it's kind of like well well that's what what i was about to say and then you ask yourself like am i am i like a finicky listener i don't think you can i don't think you can hold anyone's interest if you're an artist forever you just you just can't unless they're like your super fan. But um, I'm yeah. loyal to a lot of like I was talking about this actually uh, with friend of the pod, Tim McMahon from Mouthpiece and uh, Search. And uh, so we'll get to talk to him, too, about some Rev stuff. And we were saying, like, you know, I was like, I'm loyal. Like, that's not to say, like, like you put out something that's just like I don't love, like, say, like the war zone bullet album or something like I, I don't like that no that's you know, the, hard to hard to fathom you, you like that one no not at all oh or like like, like <laughs> dys like i legit only like the first dys record same with ssd i only like the first record i don't oh, like their progression their records aren't aren't so hot yeah like yeah. so so i'm thinking about like like a band that's had a, a long career like rem right mm-hmm. i they even started they're they're my favorite band and they even started to lose me when they did uh around the sun came out in like 2004 um like i bought it because i'm a fan bought it the day it came out and i literally in two i listened to it once and then i was like all right whatever and then when i would listen to rem it would just 
not be that record. Um, but then they, you know, accelerate. Then sometimes it's like you you don't want to necessarily fully tap out because they redeem themselves. The next record, Accelerate, was great. And their last record, Collapse In and Out, was great. And now I can go back and listen to Around the Sun. I can find redeeming qualities about it, but it's, sure. it's not like the first one that I would like, you know, put on. Like I, I've never been like, this is the one I want to hear. Yeah. But um, I think it is tough because when you've played in bands, you know, and you break up and you've done other bands and you realize you had that one band that was special where you had this chemistry and like, yeah, you have people just say like, Oh, what's, what, why is this band getting back together? And it's like, like you said, you don't know what goes on when we get together in that, in that room, you don't know how important this is to us. Like we don't, you know, we don't really care. I guess what you think, if you don't like it, that's fine. You're entitled to that. I think that into another EP, that last EP they did, Omens, is like, it is interesting. I think it sounds really, the recording quality is good. And like, um, you know, they probably didn't have anyone like sticking their nose in there telling them like, hustle, we do this or like record at this studio. This is your producer. It was, you know, I'm assuming that they self-produced and they're at an age now where they're like, oh, we know the sounds we like out of the instruments we play. And, you know, Richie knows knows how to sing and knows his range and yeah like you're not going to tell him like like you don't need to tell them anything what to do they know what to do you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i'm looking I to see yeah it's i'm looking to see who produced omens on discogs here let's see mike looks like someone named uh mike trulines trulinus huh. so if anyone listening knows you know i'm i i have to say that i'm I've only listened to Omens a handful of times and I, that's not to like say that there's anything bad about it, but I, I just, you know, it's hard for me to latch onto. And I'm sure the more I hear it, the more I will enjoy it because when I have heard it, I'm like, wow, this is good. And this is a fucking good comeback record, but it just never grabbed me the same way. And maybe because the the album that is uh, known as Soul Control, it's not as good as Seamless in in the um, what we're presented as, like what we have of it. I know it's not a finished album, but to end on Seamless, that's kind of where like like I'm stunted. My growth is stunted on Seamless, and so it's maybe harder for me to get into anything after. Dude, give it, give it, give it a um. Yeah. Give it, a, give it another like listen. Get, with you know a, what? Maybe if I get it on a physical medium yeah. instead of you don't just have trying to stream it, it's not on cassette. I don't know. Um, if it's on cassette. The, I know that it's on CD and and LP. The first song. No, yeah, it's not. It's on uh, vinyl and CD. Well, someone's fucking up along the way. Um, maybe you can put it out on cassette. Maybe you can get the rights and yeah, the licensing right. Um, well, it's not on. It's on a label called Ghost Chip. It's not on like a. Mm. Well, a I could get. A, I could get. According to uh, Discogs, I could get a purple vinyl copy for under twenty dollars. So it. maybe I'll just do that. I just remember, and I might have said this maybe on the insight when we were talking about it. But the first song on Omens, Richie hits a note like a classic Richie yeah. note. And my weird reaction was to like laugh, but not mm, laugh yeah. funny, just laugh like 
holy shit, he yeah. still yeah. got it. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. he's still doing this. And and um, so definitely give it a, a spin. But mm-hmm. um that's all I got. I wanted to thank you, Jeremy, so much. Yeah. Um, Jason, thanks you. Um and I'm glad that I we got to facilitate you seeing those guys again and surprising yeah, that was, them. That was awesome. Um, uh, and, Greg, uh, what's our what's our next episode? God, I oh, I think next as far as next in the Rev catalog. Yes, we have Sensefield. Um, no, it's um, Iceburn Poetry of Fire, uh, which I actually just got on cassette. <laughs> I have Jeremy. <laughs> I have this. Uh, this hashtag that I use in my head whenever I go to the post office and it's hashtag things I bought on Ambien. So the other day I get this package and it's an in defense of animals uh, compilation cassette with the likes of Pearl Jam, Michael Stipe, Primus, Guinea Puppy, Concrete Blonde, Meat Beat, Manifesto, Lush. Like this is, and there's this fucking, if you open it, Look how long this insert is. It just keeps going. And it's all this information about the in defense of the IDA, the in defense of animals organization. Oh yeah. And I'm like, wow, this is so fucking cool. But then also in the package was Iceburn poetry of fire on cassette. And I think this whole package was like $10 shipped or something like that. Like it's, yeah, I, this I ended up getting, scouring. Um, I ended up getting, you know, all the Iceburn records. Oh, they get like, they get stranger and stranger. I think, and I go. just think like Iceburn and Engine Kid are the two bands where I'm thankful for the podcast to give me a reason to kind of dig deeper because I think both are just super rewarding listens. Yeah. And like I like I put on that uh, Fire and record the Iceburn. Yeah. I mean that that thing smokes. But like have faced this is great. And then I've said a bunch of times on here that new the new album on Southern Lord is is excellent. It's one of my favorite yeah, things awesome. this year. Oh, is that, so, is that this is the sealed copy of uh, Angel Wings that I'm gonna have to break open when I uh I saw them on that tour in New York. They played Brownies, saw Engine Kid. They were pretty awesome. It was a great we had a good convo on the uh split with Greg and uh Gentry. Gentry's Gentry's been on a couple times and uh we're gonna have him back for obviously for poetry of fire yeah um you should uh, invite Chubba the drummer I don't know what record he might not be on some of those I don't think he's on any of the other because I thought about that too and I don't know if is Cash is he like a guy that would be cool let's see the lineup you know kept shifting they did records that weren't on Rev too so yeah because um, as far as Rev stuff, we have Poetry of Fire. Um, Polar Bear. I think, yeah, but see, that's that would have to be like a bonus or maybe like uh, a point five. Uh, I think we just have Poetry of Fire and Med- Meditative Evolutions. This is Meditative Evolutions, yeah. Gentry, James Holder, Greg, uh, the sax player. Yeah, sax jock. And, yeah, uh, Joe Smith on drums and Cash on bass. Wait, so. is Joe Smith... Chubba? That's Chubba, yeah. His it name says, is Joseph Smith. That's right. Yeah, Joseph. Oh, it and says, that's Poetry Fire? All right, yeah, and see. then uh, the live three-piece 
for the Poetry of Fire live stuff was Gentry, Joe, and Cash only, it says. Okay. I would love to have Gentry, uh, Chubba, and Cash. I like um, would I love to have Sax Jock on the show. Yeah. Jock. But yeah, man, like the ice burn, uh, it was just going down that rabbit hole has been awesome. And uh, you know, Do you know about Sax Jock, Hav? Yes, uh, we he yeah. uh, was mentioned on the <laughs> the, uh, the Iceburn Engine Kid split. Um, Gentry talked about him. So here's some here's some shinfo. Kick it, know. kick that shinfo. Sax Jock was the football the captain of the football team at my high school when I was a sophomore, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's a saxophone player. And then my brother in law, who is Pete Hines, who's the drummer of Handsome and Murphy's Law, and he loves to give people nicknames just loves it so the name sax jock came from pete hines did sax did sax jock ever do a guest spot in murphy's law that's what i immediately thought last time i highly doubt it (laughs) i think he was captaining the football team while murphy's law so your brother your brother-in-law played on best wishes that's it yeah fuck yeah he's an amazing drummer oh yeah he's badass um that's so cool but yeah, thank you so much, Jeremy. Yeah, awesome. We'll to be see talking. You, man. Let's get that. Let's get that record going. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh, Hold on. I'm gonna show you one more. You ready? That is that's classic. Wow. Is that Drew and that's my brother with a wig on, and Drew. Nice. Is that an inside out shirt? He's got on. Yes. I've I never seen so. that. I've never I seen that inside out shirt. High school. I'll bet they made it at their high school. In school. Oh, that's so sick. I love that. Hav, yeah. I know Hav loves that. I love so, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, we'll, so we'll, we'll ice, is Iceburn going to play shows? Yeah, I'm assuming they but will. But like, do you think they'll come out to the East Coast? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. And then Insight, we got to get you guys out here next I year. I want to come out. I got, I know we got to figure it out before yeah. any of us pass away. We'll have to do like a, we'll, we'll have to do a weekend uh next i said next year we'll do like an insight one-up weekend it'd be awesome i yeah. was bothering stormy about it actually i was like can you book us some shows yeah so awesome thank you so much yes this was this was like a long one but i'm so glad it was because it's into another ignorus and yeah uh, i'm excited to i'm excited to hear the final product if you guys ever you know if you guys ever feel the need to have me as a guest again i'm happy to do it oh, absolutely you'll be our, our uh, next fill in when jason is unavailable yeah yeah which might <laughs> so what's up everybody this is javier from the where it went podcast just wanted to give a special bit up bow to our top tier patrons Billy Tanell, Bram Hubble, Brandon Gavell, Brian Skiffington, Brooklyn, Cesar Falcon, Chad Keplinger, David Palmer, Dirk Focused, G. Jason Head, Greg Jackson, Jeremy Holohan, John Cowell, Quiet Keith, Maddie Cox, Nate of Head to Wall Fame, Rob Moran, Tim Shear, Siren Records, and Dollar Slice Bootlegs. If you'd like to help, please check out www.whereitwentpodcast.com. There's information for our Patreon and a whole bunch of other cool shit. We'll see you next time. Bidibo.